everyone, and welcome to Between the Sheets, episode number 409. Formula 409. I'm your host, Chris Zellner, joined as always by my co-host, David Bixenspan. And Bix, this past week has not been a good week for you. First, we have the Taylor Gang uh, posting their group photo in NXT, and now we learn... Terry, that's Terry Taylor's uh, band of uh, trainees, associates, whatever. And then we have Lauren Boebert saying that Stan Lane is not her father. Well, they got a uh, store-bought uh, DNA test, apparently. Your world has been rocked. Yeah. It was weird, too. All of a sudden, I get this DM from Sal Carrenti on Saturday. And he sends me this email after I give him the email, but it's like, then I'm looking around, and it's for some reason people have been barely been talking about it, but like it had been like four or five hours earlier that he had sent it to PW Insider and they posted it right away. And then uh, later in the day, uh, Daily Beast uh, caught up with the congresswoman who confirmed it. But Amazing. <laughs> I'm curious why he did not agree to do it till now. I don't know. Maybe there was some pressure put on him or something. I don't know. But, uh, I mean, yes. I mean, I guess if, she, if there's a chance, maybe she hadn't reached out since she'd become famous and stuff. Maybe now that it's more obviously not a shakedown, he was willing. I, I don't know. But, but yeah, like, they did a test, and apparently he's not the father. And uh, she did lie a little bit. She said she never said publicly that he was her father, which she did join in with her mom in some of their YouTube comment misadventures. But, yeah, I guess that story ends there for now, unless she is on a hunt for who her actual biological father is. Is that going to be a reality show? Oh, God. What if it was Bobby Eaton? See, I've always felt like, even though there's no way it would have happened based on dates and locations, the funniest possible reason would have been if it was Dennis Condry and that's why he disappeared. <laughs> so... Well, or if there it was the go. fake Stan Lane. <laughs> so, yeah. What a week in your world. All right. Um, let's get started with the show. As we are going back uh, in 2013 last week. So, we get back in our wheelhouse now. 1995, week uh, June the 7th through the 13th. And we begin with the World Wrestling Federation. The assault trial of David Boy Smith, which was scheduled to begin this week in Calgary, was postponed until January 29, 1996, at the request of the prosecution. Prosecutor Gary Balecki wouldn't give his reason for asking for the postponement, but Smith's lawyer was clearly opposed to the delay. Apparently, the prosecution's medical witness would have heard their own case. Smith was on trial for the alleged assault in a bar fight of Cody Light of Calgary, who was allegedly left with brain injuries from the altercation. Apparently, the prosecution's case was going to be that Smith used a pile driver, his wrestling finishing maneuver in the fight, forgetting, of course, Smith doesn't use a pile driver as a finisher, which resulted in the head injuries. The prosecutor's doctor's testimony apparently was that the injury suffered from a pile driver would be inconsistent with the nature of Light's neck injury, which would have badly hurt the case. It was the second delay in the case, which was written to set for October of last year. Smith had canceled his WF touring schedule indefinitely, including missing the television tapings this past week, and wasn't built in the upcoming pay-per-view. WF has slowed down the push of his allied powers tag team with Lex Luger. Uh, uh, what? 
<laughs> it says Allied Partners. <laughs> Allied Power statue on Lex Luger because they didn't know how long it would be before Smith was available. Suspect to rejoin the WF tour this coming weekend in California. It's a babyface sub since Dean's the one making the shots because his elbow got infected this past week after surgery. Yeah, okay. I forget. Have we done the week of the trial? Did it go to January 29, 1996? I believe so. Well, let me look. Um, so I look here. Because the trial uh, ends up uh, making headlines in Canada because we've been saying on the stand that everything in wrestling is a fake. No, we did the, for the 25th of January and then came back in February the 8th. Okay, so we have not done the week of the trial. Um, for those who are not familiar with the story, at least as it came out in court, um, Cody now we Lex- did cover this, we did cover this happening. We did cover this original story, but go ahead. Yeah, he goes up to Diana, very drunk, and is like, "Ah, oh, you got a nice fucking wife," like with an attitude. <laughs> and Davy claimed he brought him over to the bouncers, who got rid of him. And in his drunken state, fell, slipped, whatever, hit his head. Um, Cody Light's claim was that he had been powerbombed. I think at least that's what it is at trial. And that's why Davey's saying wrestling is fake, because he's saying, well, you can't do a powerbomb without cooperation. Now, of course, we would learn in due time that you can do variations of a powerbomb without cooperation, especially someone who's particularly strong. But, I mean... It did seem like, from the available evidence, that he did not, probably did not do anything wrong here. Yeah. And, yeah, I mean, I guess this is also why things get so weird with him and Luger in the summer. You know, leading into Davy's turn, because Davy had basically asked for the whole summer off, and then didn't need it. But, you know, you, you look at Davey's lawyer, yeah, you would be pissed, too, that uh, they got this thing delayed because, I mean, that's that would have been a, a key part of their case to have this witness uh, get discredited on the stand. Yeah. <laughs> of course, yeah, they'd be pissed. Yeah, how do you actually get a delay for that? I don't know, it's weird. Your Honor... Our expert disproves our our case. What do I do? Don't the Canadian judges wear like powdered wigs? They're they're in the wig area, at least. Yes. Yeah. Hmm. But anyway, yeah. Well, so it's a long time for the go to trial. So there's that. Yes. Now, speaking of people who had near death experiences adjacent to Davy Boy Smith. <laughs> <laughs> and Canadians. Chris Benoit, this is from the torch. Chris Benoit has not made a decision as of June the 12th whether or not he's going to sign with WF. Wednesday night, after his match with Owen Hart, he left the wrestling challenge taping immediately due to the feeling feeling ill, so he didn't have a chance to talk to WF management. He plans to have talks with WF later this week. Originally, he decided to consider working for WF, but it was suggested to him by a friend in the WWF that he might have a chance at working for the WWF and still keep his tours with New Japan. You can tell us Already it was been- Owen, Jesus. <laughs> Already Benoit has been told that is not an option. Well, no fucking shit. WCW's got to deal with New Japan. 
The WF told him it's difficult to interrupt the pacing of angles and miss major shows due to Japan tour, so they, as a policy, do not allow that. And WCW has to deal with New Japan. Well, nonetheless, get through the end of this first, and then we'll talk about this. One. Nonetheless, Benoit has not ruled out going to the WF anyway. If things go out to a couple of years, he has said he, he may stay, or else he figures he can return to Japan. Friends say Benoit will have to become a U.S. citizen, and working a full-time deal for the U.S. office may help him reach that goal. Benoit has committed to our next Saturday night's card at ECW Arena. It's amazing how much people just didn't know stuff before the internet. Like, oh, he's, oh, he wants to become a citizen. Yeah, I mean, I think that's further away. I mean, at this point, he doesn't even have a work visa. But WCW has a deal with New Japan. Well, a permanent work visa. But, okay, so I, be- <laughs> I believe the story ends up changing to that WWF is willing to let him work New Japan. But it becomes moot because this is right when WCW and New Japan are really strengthening their deal. Yes. What the hell's going on outside, Bix? What are those kids doing out there screaming? What are they playing? I don't know. Like, I don't have the window ball? open. Oh, they just hear kids screaming. <laughs> it's really not kid. that loud. I just took one half of the headphones off, and it's not that loud, but somehow it's picking I up. don't hear it now, but I'm just saying, I, you know, I heard it a while ago. I'm like, wow, okay, these kids are they're screaming. Are they playing stickball, you know, in the streets or something like that? I don't or? know. The way the sound carries here is interesting. <laughs> yeah, but anyway. Um... Maybe we'll have the ice cream truck soon. But maybe that was maybe that's what they're waiting for. But um Ice cream Yeah. So Benoit I mean we're getting into the taping as we're coming up, but uh I mean he does the raw taping uh two days for a week, the live raw taping, then he does the superstars taping the day before a week and then challenge, which we'll get into in just a few minutes, but um I mean, I remember the time this being in the in the Aftermax. Yeah. You know, it, it, it was in the Aftermax after he's already joined WCW. Well, Aftermax production schedule. Exactly. So really weird to see that, you know, see that going on. Yes. Well, the Aftermax, what they did, I forget which magazine specifically it was, but they took I think out. It was Inside Wrestling, maybe? At the Superstars taping, I don't think it was at the Challenge taping, but the Superstars taping, he was managed by Ted DiBiase to see what kind of reaction that would get. Yeah, and, it was him, the newest member of the Million Dollar Corporation. Yes. Which, yeah, what a great idea. Put, put Chris Benoit with the most deceptively large manager in wrestling history. <laughs> yeah. It makes me think. It remember remember that uh, DVIC Jacques Rougeau match from Superstars, where it it I don't know was it Freddie Sparta or someone like that as the referee, but it's this really tiny referee, and you realize that these are just two absolutely gigantic human beings. If only it was Gilberto Roman. Well, thank you, Gorilla. Um, And the weird thing, too, about the Bob Holly match, because it was Adam Bomb at the Superstars taping, it was Bob Holly at the Raw taping. It was not a pre-Raw Dark match. What they did was they did it during the live show, but they cut away to, quote-unquote, another arena for the Brett, not Brett, uh, Davey Owen uh, King of the Ring qualifier that went to a draw, which was actually a voiceover of the In Your House Dark match from a month earlier, but without them ever showing the entranceway, so you couldn't tell what venue it was or what time yeah. show it was. Just, yeah. I don't think they've ever done anything else like that, have they? 
No. Where they did a different match in the building during a live sh- show on TV, but showed a tape match. In I think it has. That has happened. I know WCW's done it. Well, what were the other instances, if you can remember? It would be like uh, when they would show like a replay of a pay-per-view match. Because I think WCW may have did that for Paige and Goldberg after Halloween Havoc. That's a little different, though. This is a first-run match. I don't know, but I'm, but, but I'm saying that, that there, there was matches shown to the TV audience, and then in the building there was other stuff going on. Okay. But that, yeah, that was happening. This doesn't happen for obvious reasons, um, like we talked about with all the New Japan stuff. Uh, also, I forget we talk about this on the Fuck Sabu shows on the Patreon, patreon.com slash between the sheets. Besides the work visa issues as far as him and ECW, what do we make of the timing of this relative to all the Sabu stuff, too? Yeah. Like, it feels like everything's kind of connected, that he might be a little disillusioned with new japan as well because geez i I have to listen back to those shows because i don't even remember how we came to that conclusion that benoit was probably egging sabu on but it seemed pretty well founded at least from what i remember and from what people who have listened lately have told me so i want to refresh my memory on what actually we gleaned from the newsletters there but yeah this isn't happening wcw new japan are strengthening their deal yeah. All right. There's already advertising on the national market for the July 23rd in your house pay-per-view show, announcing Diesel versus Sid for the WF title. That's the main event of the show, and that Jeff Jarrett will both make his singing debut and also defend his Intercontinental title. The singing is apparently part of the angle to split Jarrett up with the roadie. Since Rhodey's the one who can actually sing, at some point Jarrett would be singing and it would be surprisingly good, and then later come out that it was Jarrett lip-syncing and Rhodey was singing all along. If you recall, when Brian Armstrong and Daryl Peterson, Man Mountain Rock, first met with Vincent Mann about WF, it was along the idea that, along with Nick Patrick, they could do a rock and roll band gimmick. Nick Patrick? I do not remember this one. No. Me Where would either. Nick Patrick be in, in the line of this? And why no Steve Armstrong? Well, Steve already been there, so... Yeah, and he was going to do a singing gimmick, and they never had him sing. Yeah. But, uh... Yeah, Nick Patrick. I never heard this story. I don't remember it. Yes, and of course, the weir- one of the weirder parts of this is... Well, Jeff can sing. Yeah. <laughs> is he as good a singer as Brian? Probably not. No. But he can sing. He does not have a bad singing voice at all. No. But, yep, this was uh, this was the deal. What was going to happen? And, of course, we all know what happened, so. All right, latest on the injury situation. Diesel still spent the word pay-per-view, but definitely won't be back until that time. Rhodey reportedly has a staph infection. His knee is still out. It won't be back until the pay-per-view as well. Razor Ramon bruised his wrist, taking him up off the ladder on June 9th at the Nassau Coliseum match with Jeff Jarrett. And immediately went home and then missed in the weekend. Ramon's actually a question for the pay-per-view as well. Tatanka's knee is bad, but he still worked over the weekend. Owen Hart suffered a concussion on June 11th at the Meadowlands and attacked automatic smoking guns, but refused to get checked after the show. And last word Dave heard was one, two, three kid was expected sometime back in July. Injuries, injuries, injuries. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, yeah, let's let the guy refuse to get checked out when he has a brain injury. That's just a thing you can do. Yeah. (laughs) The thing with something like that is that's just common sense, I feel like. But, again, it's just a a different era. Yes. I just had his bell rung. A concussion, yes. That's what I'm saying. We say, I just had his bell rung. It'll be all right. Uh, reason NBC special was canceled is director of program services NBC, which was not Warren Littlefield, was on vacation when the deal was made, and when he found out about it, he immediately put the kibosh on it. Vince McMahon was said to be extremely happy since the NBC guy told McMahon, who's in many ways insulated by yes men, it's far removed from actually knowing how the general public perceives wrestling today, that pro wrestling was an 80s fad, and it's now 1995, and they want to do 90s programming. Ah! <laughs> Um, <laughs> here's what's always been extra weird about this with this WrestleMania, you know, main events special that was going to be on NBC and then aired on Fox months later. It was never actually advertised anywhere. The It was on the Raw the Monday before Vince said how you can watch the top two matches from WrestleMania this Saturday night. I forget if he gave a time or is there a game or something it would have been after. I don't know. But he says, and then he says, on the Proud is a Peacock network. Like, he never actually says 11 o'clock or whatever it was on NBC. He never says, check your local listings. It's really weird. So by the time he did those voiceovers, did he think it wasn't happening or might not happen? Like, I always found that really, really peculiar. Like, even before it aired... Or didn't air, I should say. You're watching and you're like, okay, if this show is happening, why did he say that? That way. I'm trying to figure out who the, uh, who this would have been. I don't think it would have been Don Olmeyer. Hmm. Because he was West Coast president. Yeah, I'm going to see if I can search. I mean, Littlefield was the boss. He replaced Brandon Tartikoff. Um, I'm doing director of program services and I don't see anything under that title. Okay. Director of program services. <sighs> yeah, I have no clue who that would, who that would have been. <laughs> so they have nothing in writing too? Like this whole story has always been bizarre. It's always been a really I mean, peculiar story. Yeah, because I mean, I see, I mean, I see Littlefield, but I just don't see anything up under it. Okay, I'm trying to do a search on ProQuest. I guess I'll narrow it down by. Let's try 1993 to 1996. I guess. All right. Uh, these are local stations. Director of program services. We got ABC's director of program services. Uh, another local station doesn't look like I'm seeing let's see this one does not have a oh no wait this is just a duplicate of the previous article okay yeah I can't find anything hmm anyway it'd be nice if Dave would have had a name in here but oh well alright for whatever reason the rumors floating around that are that either Mabel or the roadie will win King of the Ring. 
with Mabel, with the Mabel rumor having the most talk. While well, only one would qualify as surprise, the idea of booking is to build the things that will make money and simply not fool the public. Neither of these guys are going to draw a buddy if Shawn Michaels is the one potential to draw money. If Mabel wins, Shawn has to lose a semis to, and lose a semis to him. If Rhodey's win, either Shawn or Undertaker can go to the finals. They were already pushing on television this weekend the idea that there is dissension between Rhodey and Jarrett. Well, they went with Mabel. And it was a move at the time that was odd. But they were trying to push him as this top le- top singles heel. So you kind of have to, uh, you know, make this type of move to, to get him to get him over. But it didn't work. Yeah. And Dave ended up being right in the end. He didn't drop money. Nah, it just wasn't the right guy in a number of ways. Um, yeah, didn't do enough to build him up or anything. He's was this, you know, lower to mid card tag team guy. Even after the heel turn, like of all the people, I mean. What they really would have been better off doing was finding a way to heat Bigelow back up after losing at Mania and have it be him, but, you know. Or they could have just put it on Sean. Well, yes. It doesn't have to right. I mean, there's there was no precedent at this point about it setting up a world title program or anything. No. Sean, you know, Sean just come back. He's Red Hot's a baby face. I mean, why not? Just give him more more momentum on the way to winning the Intercontinental title, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I I think maybe they just wanted somebody to do that King gimmick, and that's not something that Sean's going to do. You mean because they hadn't really done it the first couple of years, but this is the first time. Yeah, there is that. So because they hadn't done the King gimmick since Macho King. But um, it went. It, it would have been had it been a heel. I mean, they did well. They did King of Hearts, Owen. But he didn't wear the crown and stuff week to week. He didn't wear the crown week to week, but he did do King of Hearts. So there was that. But that was just a nickname after that point. Like if he did the whole King gimmick, I'd agree with you. But I don't count that. Eh, yeah, I mean it's. I don't know, but yeah, I think, I think they should have put it on babyface on this one. But anyway, all right, wrestling challenge and action zone taped on June seventh in Johnstown, Pennsylvania for two thousand fans. Highlight by Christmas working as a babyface, doing a four and a quarter star match, losing to Owen Hart. This is the best match on all three nights of the tapings, and Benoit got over better as a babyface than as a heel. Razor and Bigelow beat Yokozuna Owen Hart by countout. By the way, Yokozuna is now billed at 641 pounds and Mabel at 588. On TV, they claim Yokozuna weighing in at Singapore and sure looks believable that he weighs that much and he's the heaviest wrestler in WF history. Haystack Calhoun was billed at 601, but in reality, he weighed closer to 450. Dave does that back in 1990. Yokozuna weighing in Japan at 484, but he's much heavier now. It's actually amazing if he weighs 641, he can get up and down like he does, but he still barely needs to lose a lot of weight. Gorgeous George Thur from Memphis. Rob Kellum got a tryout. Well, Harvey Wimpham is his manager against Scott Studd, but looked bad. Scott Studd also worked as Lex Luger's flag holder under his real name of Scott Anton in the match with Yokozuna in the first line of tapings. 
Middle of the mission, beat someone guns. Sean Michaels interview regarding King of the Ring, and as he was leaving, Rad Radford came out, and they argue, and Michaels shoved him down. And at the Radford squash, he challenged Michaels for next week. Adam Bomb went double count out with Jean-Pierre Lafitte. Actually, some main event this past weekend. And the match is a lot better than it sounded. Lafitte's like a much heavier version of Jerry Estrada as far as wild moves. He is one improved wrestler. Well, Jerry Estrada did have his run as a buccaneer. So there's that. When the Mercy in the dark match being Troy of Techno Team 2000. Eric Watts in a terrible match. And Sean beat Rafford for the for the actors on main event. Bret Hart beat Henry Godwin, the game revenge for the double count out earlier. Hakushi tried to run in at the Brett, destroyed him, which may be the end of their program. Maybe not, as Brett has been working on getting Ichimasa Wakamatsu. A Japanese manager worked Calgary in the early 80s and was New Japan's manager of Andre John in the mid-80s in to get heat for Hakushi since Shinja has no charisma at ringside. And Hakushi just should be a Bayface stylistically, which is correct. In a squash, Jean-Pierre Lafitte did 12 reps on overhead press with a jobber. All right. So what should we talk about here? Well, uh, we're not done. They started an angle that all the TVs regarding Man Mountain Rock and Bob Backlund. Backlund broke Rock's guitar. It was really bad with Rock crying about his broken guitar. Their first match was on June 10th in Masquerade Gardens. Described as one of the worst matches in the history of Western civilization as they went 10 minutes without even locking up. At the Rock one, Backlund put the chicken wing on him after the match. Okay. All right. Um, I mean, I guess we can get to this when we get to Raw. Well, okay, yes. This is talking about all the tapings in some form. I guess we should save the Scotty Anton thing for when we get to Raw. Well, that's actually something we should probably play then, because we weren't going to put that in the clips because I forgot that that was the show. Yeah. Um, right? Because I mean, I guess I would think that would be the best way to discuss that, because that's such a weird one-off thing so i guess I'll, hold on i'll put that in my little thing here luger Yoko. well he was an american yeah. male yes um you know we'll talk more about the guitar angle in a bit too um is there i mean what do you think of the comments about hakushi and his manager well i think hakushi should have been babyface all along yes as far as his work i mean the way he worked he did not work as a heel Akio Sato as Shinja was not good because he wasn't he wasn't being Akio Sato. No. He's being Shinja. Yes. Uh, Wakamatsu, if you're gonna go heal with Akushi, Wakamatsu was the guy who, if he was available to manage, would have been the guy to have in there. He's a personality, yeah. Yes. Although I don't know how that would have went if he tried to use the megaphone, because that'd be too, too close to Jimmy Hart. Yes. Now as far as Jean Pierre Lafitte, um, the whole thing, it's just so weird that he didn't get more and better chances to get over in this era. Yeah. As a big guy who can do all the stuff he does, and not like he's not charismatic at all. Just strange. And, you know, like he had, he agreed to do this gimmick because I think it had been his idea to play up the missing eye. And potentially even be a baby face and use it in terms of speaking to kids and schools and blah, blah, blah. And they just went with him being a pirate. Yeah. And he's still young here. He's only 27. Yeah. People forget about that. Yeah, when he was on TV as tag team champions, he was young. 
Fatu be working on the road as a single since Yoni's nowhere to be found on the booking sheet, so he may have been let go. Yes. It was so weird seeing Barbarian as not Barbarian. Yeah. But, I mean, that's what they did. <laughs> I know. You know? And a cost cutting measure due to poor crowds on the road, only the bit managers. So I tend to be Aussie. We'll be sitting on the road, so people like Mr. Fuji, Sonny, Harvey Woodman, etc. will only go on the road if if the city is within driving distance of their home. Which, in an era without even a downside guarantee contract, means you're fucked. Yeah. Yeah. I I believe there's a whole section of uh, Downtown Bruno's book about this, too. But, I mean, look at the 80s. I mean, the managers were not going on the road well, a whole here's the thing. lot. Here's the thing, though, Chris. In the 80s, when the WWF did that, they got paid to not work the arena shows. I mean, they weren't even working, you know, Toronto, um, my Boston Garden. Sometimes you see, I mean, sometimes, I mean, in the early days, Madison Square Garden... I mean, it was interesting to see, and and you had to get the, the uh, excuses from Gorilla. It's like, where's where's uh, Jimmy Hart at? I'm sure he probably has a seat somewhere in the balcony watching the matches. You know? Yes, but in that era, as you know, was the tradition when they had the Three Wise Men era. Those guys were getting paid. They were not. Yeah, I mean, there's it wasn't a like this. That's, that's the big difference. That's the big difference here. This is cost cutting, and none of these people are getting paid. Being a WWF manager was considered one of the best jobs in the wrestling business, particularly in the 70s, but even into the 80s, because you were getting paid real money on a very limited schedule. Yeah. You know, which, you know, credit to, in some ways, to the Vinces that they recognize that these guys are drawing money because they're cutting these main event promos, but... Even though we're not bringing them to most of the shows, we're still going to pay them as if they're drawing that money. You know, that that is honestly a big exception for most of the wrestling business when you think about it. I mean, think about how many territories didn't even pay managers well at all compared to the rest of the roster. You know, lots of territories, managers only got prelim pay. Yeah. Yeah. Just different era. It was, you know, it was guys who basically had to negotiate it, like your Gary Hart's and your Jim Cornette's, where the guys they were working with kind of had to give the okay to be like, yeah, he's an equal. You need to pay him as if well, one of these I, matches. I think, think Ellering Ellering was the guy that trendsetter in that. Uh, I think Gary Hart would have been earlier. Yeah, but Gary Hart wasn't getting paid like Ellering was getting paid. Well, no, but that's guaranteed. That once it really got big, it was like that was guaranteed contract era beginning. Though, I mean, Ellering was getting paid at the same level as Animal Hawk, and that was the the demand of the contract. But in when they were getting paid on the house, that was the same for Gary Hart, and that was the same for Cornette. Yeah, but the Ellering was before Cornette, at least. I don't because, know. I mean. Because that no, would have been so. have to been from the very beginning, because Cornette was getting the same payoffs as the Midnights in Mid South, so it would have had 
But so if Ellering did that first, it would have been at the very beginning of the Road Warriors. Yeah. All right, weekend house shows are Nassau Coliseum on June the 9th, 6,000. Massacre Garden on the 10th, 8,000. Meadowlands on the 11th, 6,000. Here we go. Three straight nights, Long Island, New York City, and the Meadowlands. No sense. Well, okay, but at least this time they did three different cards, as Dave knows. Still, I mean, you're... But, no, of course, no, I agree. You know, we've talked about this before when we're in this era, which, I mean, the three knights all having the same cards, they'd been doing that for over a year, right? Yeah. They started that with WrestleMania Revenge Tour in 94, I think. One of the weirdest ideas they've ever had. They know this market. They know that doing all three is ridiculous. Now, you can do Nassau and Meadowlands maybe in the same weekend. Because those are different audiences, to a degree. But MSG is drawing from everywhere. MSG is drawing from within the city, from Long Island, from New Jersey, from Connecticut. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, so yeah, it makes sense that MSG did the biggest. I mean, that's another thing, too. Like, <laughs> I know certainly, you know, to a degree when I was a kid, like, my parents preferred M- t- taking me to MSG in some ways because we could just take the train and they wouldn't have to drive at night. That makes a difference. That makes a big difference. All right. Uh, shows did better than previously when they ran all three together because this time they had different cars in all three cities. NASA had the Battle Royal, where Shaw was up with Owe, Yoko, Mabel, and Bundy, and still won. <laughs> Jared beat Ramon in a ladder match, and Sid beat Bigelow. MSG had Sean over Sid in a cage match, which wasn't good. And after Sid, Tatanka, and DiBiase attacked Sean. They set up an August 12th show MSG with Diesel and Sean versus Sid and Tatanka. Adam Bomb over Detroit by Canna. Savio over Owen and Tonka over Bigelow. And the Meadowlands had Sid lose an Undertaker by DQ to talk interfering. Owen and Yoko over swung guns. Savio summoned for Razor over Jarrett by cutout. And Sean and Bigelow over Kama and Tatanka. Now, as a result of the, this, this is the torch, as a result of disappointing houses, even though all three produced $100,000 plus gates, Vincent Mann has decided to only run one of the three buildings at a time from now on and run several smaller towns within driving distance over the same weekend instead. Yeah. How about that? How about that? Good, good call, Vince. Honest to God, this is one of the worst ideas they ever had. <sighs> on the business side, certainly. It makes you wonder who was the genius that came up with this. I guess this is still the Ed Cohen era. So, would this be him? Or would this, like... And again, it's it's wrestling with the same card and stuff. And it's like... I mean, I'm trying to think. Would, would concerts even do this? Are there any concerts even that would run all three in a week? Or a weekend? I doubt it very seriously. <sighs> trying to think. Who's on tour in this in this period? In 95? Summer 95? Yeah. Uh, probably Aerosmith. Okay. Let's see. I'm pl- going to go to setlist.fm and let's see what we have here. So look up Aerosmith 1995. And, uh, no, they are not doing a full tour at this time. Okay. Metallica? Let's see. 
I mean, why don't you just Google while I'm looking here? Well, this summer is '95 concert tours. This is the Load album, so I'm guessing they're on tour. Uh, I mean, granted, maybe they're just missing some stuff too. No, but not. I see like scattered stuff here. I mean, maybe it, maybe you should just look somewhere where I know there's full concert. Pearl Jam. Okay. Pearl Jam's one. Uh, this is what the Versus tour. Uh, 95, so probably. Okay. Um, they run Milwaukee on the 8th and 9th of July. They run Chicago on the 11th. And that's their summer tour dates, what I see here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, they have other... Where are you looking? Setlist.fm or somewhere else? Another site that had it. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think. Like, I mean, when I've looked at just like, you know, bands, I would actually collect, you know, when I say collect, download bootlegs of stuff like Depeche Mode. I don't think I ever saw anything like that. Like in recent years, at least, I know they would they would do like two nights at MSG or a night at Barclays and Jones Beach if it's the summer or something like that. I don't recall ever seeing anything, you know, like this. Because, you know, concert promoters are big on routing and stuff, but they're also not idiots. Just strange. Again, like, whose idea was it? Whose idea was it also not just to do this, but at the beginning, give all three the same cards? Yeah. Really, all those main tours I see is Grateful Dead and Fish. (laughs) You know? Yeah. 95 was an interesting era in, in music, so... I mean, you got a lot of um, festivals and stuff like that going yes. on. Yes. Uh, a lot of uh, station st- uh, themed stuff. So... Almost you don't, Easter I, Christmas, all that stuff. Well, you, I mean, you just, you just don't have a lot of the big artists doing stuff at that time. I don't think Michael Jackson was on tour that year. I know he had um, an album out. Okay, so I went back two years just because this is one I knew would have fairly complete listings. So Depeche Mode for Songs of Faith and Devotion tour. And granted, this is a big, ambitious tour for a number one album. They did September 20th at Nassau. September 21st at the Meadowlands, September 23rd and 24th at MSG, and then back at Nassau on the 25th. But again, this is a big, famous tour. You know, not every concert tour is going to be this. I'm looking at Dave Matthews' band, and, um, yeah, they're running, uh, they're running all over the place. Like they're running Nashville, Memphis, New Orleans on a weekend loop. Um, there's Dallas, Austin, Houston on a weekend loop. Uh, there's Sacramento, San Francisco, and Oakland on a weekend loop. In fact, San Francisco and Oakland on the same day. Oh, it's Vitalogy for Pearl Jam, not uh, Versus. There you go. So, I mean, it happens. But wrestling right. is just wrestling is not concerts though. No, it's not. Alright, let's go to Raw. Which some of the stuff that's in this Raw report is not on the WWE Network showing of Raw. Yeah, and we're not sure if that's 
tape issues, weird content edit decisions, or what. But the episode runs like four and a half minutes short. I don't know. After an elaborate preview of the Lex Luger Yokozuna main event that evening, a the program opened up. They again showed Bob Backlund speaking on a soapbox to the fans in the lobby of the arena, telling them what he would do as president. Not on the network. Not on the network. Bam Bam Bigelow beat Dwayne Gill. During the match, Vince McMahon and Jerry Lawler interviewed Diesel on the telephone. Diesel said his elbow won't be 100% by King of the Rain, but he will be in the match. He said the condition of his elbow improved considerably in recent days. This is that elbow injury we're talking about. Yes, from the Sid, the well, the first Sid in your house match, where uh, yeah. he gets dropped with his elbow out on both the power bomb and the choke slam. Yes. How much of that is Sid's fault or just Dash's? I don't know. Then we get. Waylon Mercy. Let's go to the clip. I just realized we had the second uh, Bray Wyatt vignette back to back with how many vignettes in are we for Waylon? Uh, about that many. Huh. Unusual athlete. Hello, people. It's Waylon Mercy again. Out here enjoying this peaceful surroundings, enjoying nature. Enjoying these insects. Enjoying this worm. But you know something? I enjoy worms. But I don't enjoy worms crawling on me. Just like when I get in that wrestling ring. Right. I don't like wrestlers touching me. And I definitely don't want them crawling on me. And if they do so, I'll tell you what's going to happen. They're going to get smushed just like this worm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Unfortunately, I do think yeah. we know what Waylon yeah. Mercy means. Got a nice smile. Oh, wait a minute. It's a bird. It's a plane. Oh, it's-, it's the WWF blimp flying high above all of New York City this coming weekend. Oh, look at the moon there. On up to Boston as well. As a matter of fact, Captain Kerwin Silphies just may try and fly the blimp right on into the Her- arena when we return. And don't forget... Coming up, Lex Luger, one-on-one against her monstrous Yoko Zuna. Stay tuned. Oh, yeah. Now we've got this, though, too, which is not listed in the report. We've got Pox with Barry Dudinsky and the Smoking God. The porn, like, uh, Sarah J? Those have a Pog? You said Pogs. Oh, P-O-G. Not P-A-W-G? Oh. No. If only. Well, Burpa Faye was Cash, it's going on backstage. The smoking guns against I'm me start this and the Mad Capper. Actually, yeah, they're calling the Mad Caps for a reason I forget. But. Welcome to the tag team matchup for Milk Caps. It's going on backstage. The smoking guns against me and the Mad Capper. Sorry I can't be out in the arena with you. Yeah, Take so a look at what we have for you today. We have 66 Madcaps. The hottest game out in the market right now, we have them for you. That's a complete set, by the way, and it's the only place that you can get it. In addition to that, you also get, excuse me, fellas, this 18-karat gold-plated slammer. It's the only place in the world that you can get it with the WWF logo on it. I'm not giving it to you, fellas. In addition to that, you also get the 5-inch neoprene board. Also the only place in the world that you can get it. 
You want to take it home with you? But wait, there's more. Are you guys having a good time? We're having a great time. This is great. I'm glad you're having a good time. And by the way, fellas, if you order the collection, you get the Just Slam His Own t-shirt absolutely free. 1-800-TITAN-91. That t-shirt looks great on Barry, doesn't it? Yeah, I'd like to just slam it. you guys at ringside. All right. Weirdest fad of the era? I never got into that. Never. I didn't know a whole lot of people that did. I do remember it though being a thing, but none of my personal uh, acquaintances did that. We were we were doing other crap. Well, I mean, I was more in the Target uh, age group. Well, yeah, I guess so. Um, of course, can't talk about Pogs without. Milhouse, I gotta have my soul back. I'll do anything you want. Uh, well, uh, Milhouse, give him back his soul. I've got work tomorrow. I'm really sorry. I kind of traded your soul to the guy at the comic book store. But look, I got some cool pogs. Elf pogs. Remember Elf? He's back. In pog form. You traded my soul for pogs? No! Close that door. You're letting the heat out. Shut up, shut up, shut up. <laughs> but, yeah. There you go. Pogs. Pogs to not be not to be confused with pogs, I guess would be the way to put it. Yeah, comma be David Haskins, the ghoulish fan sat ringside with a black reef to scare comma creatures of the night. <laughs> I just googled uh, the two spellings together, and the first result is on the No Stupid Questions subreddit. What are pogs? P O G S or P A P A W G S? There you go. Uh, Todd Pettengill sporting a long overdue haircut. Preview King of the Ring. Jerry Lawler previewed his match against Bret Hart and grossed out Vince McMahon in ringside with a fake flip with warts all over it. This is also not on the oh, network while you're Also not the on the network. Yes. Yeah. Um. Okay, so where are we even? <laughs> Man Mountain Rock is next. He wins a squash match. After that, Stephanie Wine announced that the fabulous Moolah, Pedro Morales, Grand Wizard, and George Ann will still be in the, the Hall of Fame. But then we get Bob Backlund in Man Mountain Rock, and this is where we get the broken guitar. So let's go to the clip. Or at least the beginning of it. Yes. Oh, wait a minute. That's a fake foot. Oh, there's the foot. Okay. Why did I maybe... Oh, we thought it was before the match. No, it's after the match. So I guess I should double wait, back a wait, little bit. Wait in his report. Yeah. All right. By the U.S. Army. Learn how to get an edge on life. Be all that you can be. Welcome back, everyone. To hey, hey, hey. Stop it. <laughs> Let's take you over now, ladies and gentlemen, to Bob Backlund. We understand Mr. Backlund is in Man Mountain Rock's locker room. This should be very interesting. A lot more interesting than that foot. Where's Rock's dressing room? Oh, this is where it all starts right here. Hey, he just dropped the guitar. Why is it just Bob sitting Backlund there just outside Man anyway? Mountain Rock's guitar. An accident. <laughs> like, hey, that that was no that was no accident. That thing's slippery. That was no accident Rock, at all. The plebeians don't understand. They don't understand how their appetite grows. The layman can't tell 
but I'm going to smarten them up, ladies and gentlemen. You are being surrounded by devious activity and noise that comes out of this so-called piece of machine. And I can't stand the effect that it has in our world. Our children can't think when they're in school anymore. They can't learn anything. They don't know how to read. And I can't stand people that play these kind of instruments. It's true or not and then. Mean evil. Uh, did you notice that camera adjustment there? No. I think the camera moved positions because there was a boom mic visible. <laughs> well. Things in their minds. The crawling stones. The what? Frozen tea. Crawling rock. You are the people what? that have had a deleterious effect on our society. And it's all, it's all garbage. Look at that. Garbage. Oh, wait, wait a minute. Garbage. He just took out the cameraman. And himself. Unbelievable. Bob Backlund better get a hold of himself. Bob Backlund, what was that? The rolling rock and the crawling stones. He's not even in form. Oh, here we go. Here comes the debut, ladies and gentlemen, of Techno Team 2000, Troy and Travis. Can't believe Bob Backlund. What was the last thing he said? I'll save us. I'll save us. The evils of rock and roll, McMahon. Oh, my God. Unbelievable. So they're wrestling John Crystal, Mike Corey, who are in jeans shorts. Cut, but they've been rolled up at the leg. Oh my god! I do love how I mean this is 1995, and still we have this look of two of what 2000 is supposed to look like. It's in and five it like, years. It looks like how people thought 2000 would look like in 1985. I mean, this looks like something out of a bad episode of Star Trek. I mean, they look like, you know, Lasertron from the year 2002, or Newbury from the year 2002, or whatever it is. You know, I mean... Where's President Rhodes? But I'm looking at John Crystal and Mike Corey in their jean shorts with the lumens rolled up. <laughs> with belts. Why? Why? Is this their answer? I, don't, I guess, has WCW started the Minute Work tag team yet? Is this their answer to a Minute Work or something? I'm, I'm wondering, someone tell them the Cream team is still a thing? Oh. <laughs> Eric Watts and Chaz Fortune, Techno Team 2000, Travis and Troy. Yeah, by the way, what is our venue here that is probably a high school gym being called something else? Our venue? Uh, hold on just a second. I was just on that page. Let's see. Raw. Let's take it. Struthers, Struthers, Ohio at the high school. Yeah. Yep. A place where they they ran for years. Oh, well, no, no, no. They called it the Struthers Field House on TV, though. Or, yeah, the Field House. The Struthers Field House. Yep. Yeah. Field House was the one that they used a lot. Yeah. that, But in the high school. Yeah. So. <laughs> but there you go. Uh, Yokozuna beat Lex Luger by count out. Well, no. The they, we, uh, Man Mountain Rock finds his guitar. Oh, yes. Yes. Rock, you did it. Rock. Can't believe you broke it. 
an accident. Man, Man Mountain Rock. Backlund. Now it's personal. I will deal with you. Man Mountain Rock will deal with Bob Backlund, ladies and gentlemen, and Yoko Zuna will. Okay, so A, Lawler's kind of right that the initial breaking of the guitar was an accident. Yeah. Um, the other thing, I, as a kid, I remember hating about this angle. They're talking about how this is his big prized guitar. It's a piece of shit. But it's not! He had been playing, since he came in for months, the custom WWF logo guitar. Yes, that's not the same one. It's a black piece of shit looking guitar. It's this tiny, cheap looking. It's cheap looking electric guitar. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So we got Luger Yokozuna, which you talk about. Yokozuna uh, beat Luger by countout. But the big story is Lex Luger's flag bearer. Yes, Scotty Anton. So let's see this here. We'll a real American male. But here it comes now, ladies and gentlemen. USA. Atlanta, GA. That's right. Bad Street, Atlanta, GA. By Rustler, Scott Antal. From Atlanta himself. A young man who has idolized Lex Luger for many a year. And marrying what Lex Luger stands for. And tonight, Lex Luger has an opportunity to settle the score once and for all with this monstrous, mighty Yokozuna. The only thing I'm trying to figure out is where in the world are we going to get a royal Big enough to fit King Yokozuna. Rock Slugger! Red Hornet Luger! Fireworks! Unabashedly American! Unabashedly standing behind old glory! How do you even get a permit to do fireworks in a high school gym? <laughs> WF did. Maybe they did. <laughs> uh, who knows? Okay, so I'm going to skip to the finish now so we get more of a. Scott Antal. Antal is the real name, by the way. Anton is That's the right. name. That's his gimmick name, yes. Uh, I guess double back a little bit here. It would be nice if we still had the chapter mark that was for the finish. You're going back a little far, ain't you? <laughs> I mean, okay, well, no, no, here we go. See? Fuji and uh, Scott, Scotty Riggs, of course. Okay, that was very obviously not recorded one next to the other. There's no way he went from what are you take to Dagger Wax Lord to Get Rope and New Generation. Luger coming over. I went to get that flag away from. Stay out of it, Luger. Fuji has the American flag in his hand. Mr. Fuji distracting Lex Luger with all four in his hand. The cornet, watch cornet. Hey, wait a minute, turn around. Hey, he doesn't have his glasses on though. From the high, cornet coming over that tennis racket. And oh my goodness, the Percy Cornet. Lex Luger grabs the flag away from Mr. Fuji, brings it back to Scott. What's he doing? Yokozuna! Oh, no! Drops, a, drops his leg across the head of Lex Luger. And the official is counting both men. 
Get in. Yokozuna rolling back into the ring. Oh, no. Come on. Get out. Lex Luger. Unfortunately, has been done. That's it. That's Can you it. believe this? That is it. The winner of the match. Yokozuna has won this matchup as a Thank you, Manny Garcia. Yokozuna will face Razor Ramon in the King of the Ring, and what an excruciating defeat on a part of Lex Luger. Look at right, look at, look at, and Yokozuna's tight, you can actually see the face print of Lex Luger. He dropped right across it, that was it. Lex Luger distracted by Mr. Fuji. Lex getting the flag away from Mr. Fuji, and in the process was counted out, it results in this monster. Okay. So, as Scotty has said, he was supposed to be brought in past this as Luger's protege, and I forget if he gave a reason or if he just wasn't ever told why it didn't happen. I'm assuming it's Luger's contract dispute, but doesn't go anywhere and he goes to WCW, but I believe him because, I mean, you have Vince calling him a pro wrestler. Yeah. He's not just going to do that if there was no plan for him. Yeah. So, always kind of stood out as a weird moment. But. And, and then he goes to WCW where Lex Luger was there. <laughs> well, I mean, he's quickly in WCW because he's in Memphis via WCW within weeks of this, isn't he? Well, he's already been in Memphis, I think. Has that already? He's in Memphis at, I think he's in Memphis at the time. But he was in Memphis. I thought he was in Memphis through WCW, though. He was. Okay, I'm curious now. So I'm pulling up Mid-South Coliseum results. 1995, Scott. Okay, yeah, he's been there since January. Yeah. And he's there through July. Yeah. I mean, well, wait, was the WCW deal already going on in January? Well, the Gambler was there. Gambler was there. Well, wait, when does Gambler start? Gambler doesn't start till April. But still, before this. (laughs) Yes. But maybe he wasn't there through WCW. Maybe not. All very weird, though. I mean, technically, both companies are kind of working with USWA. So. Yeah, Vader's Roadkill Tour. All right. Uh, Raw closes with Jerry Lawler's training footage for uh, his match with Brett at King of the Ring. So let's go to that. The uh, Kiss My Foot match. <sighs> Bret Hart. Are you getting ready for our big match at the King of the Ring, huh? Are you down in the dungeon with your old man Stu Hart wrestling around? Well, not me. I'm here in my royal stables with my prize horse, Prince. He's helping me get ready, and you know how he's doing it? <laughs> he's letting me walk around in his stall with my bare feet. And I'm not going to wash these feet, Bret Hart, not until after our match. Not until after you've had to bend down on your hands and knees and crawl across that ring after I've beaten you. And then, in front of the entire world, Prince, he's going to have to pucker up those lips, and he's going to have to kiss my filthy, dirty nasty royal feet <laughs> it's gonna be great now ladies and gentlemen that was disgusting to put it mildly walking around and no, we're not done. give me a break but ladies and gentlemen you're not gonna believe this but this past weekend in a in a matchup of single competition it was Aldo Montoya this young man making a name for himself here in the WWF one-on-one with Jerry the King Lawler 
And what you saw before is nothing compared to what you're about to see. Come on, McMahon. This is a royal treat for these peons. Yeah, you're right. about to see how my training is paying off. Watch this. Typical fashion of Jerry the King Lawler beating uh, the bell there, attacking. Oh, oh, and look at that. It was Lawler on the receiving end pretty much all the way through this hey, matchup. I thought you weren't going to show this part. And Aldo Montoya was taking it to Jerry the King Lawler. Just as the hitman Bret Hart is going to do at the Look King at the of the Ring. I was here. just letting him get the big head. Get overconfident. Before I gave him the big foot. <laughs> what you will see, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, there it was. Yeah. Where are they Jerry not Lawler just showing the footage? Don't show this. this. Don't show yes. this. Right into the ring post. Oh, what the hell? Like, I can't watch all this. Why, Why are they showing so much? I don't know. There we go. Okay. Yeah, that's great. He's going to have to kiss. And then the unthinkable happened as Lawler unzipped that boot. The switch coming out, ladies and gentlemen. You could smell it all the way up to the fifth row. It was not exactly going to be foot joy oh, look, look, for look. Aldo Montoya. Don't be callous, McMahon. <laughs> now, let me use my Royal King's clicker and go back and forth. Look, there you go. He is kissing my foot. And watch this, McMahon. He's going to taste a little. Oh, look at that. Do it again. <laughs> oh, Lawler actually said something clever for once. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I I always enjoyed this this deal. I enjoyed the kiss of the foot thing. I thought it was hilarious. Lawler is definitely in his wheelhouse. He made it work. Very few could have done it like he did. And then the payoff with Brett, you know, and and Lawler having to kiss Brett's foot. I enjoyed it. I thought it was fun. Lawler was so great in the vignettes and stuff. Yes, yes. He's definitely uh, getting to play himself to the hilt here. Yeah, I mean, he was putting his best foot forward. In that footage? (laughs) And making that angle work. So, uh, yes. All right, uh, Raw did a 3.4 rating. Action Zone did a 1.8. Mania did a 1.3. Raw continues at a record pace. Yeah. Raw was doing some really good ratings in this era. Yes. Uh, business sucks. But <laughs> yeah. But Raw's doing great on TV. Absolutely. All right, so quick hitters here before we go from the torch. Dustin Rhodes has not signed a contract yet. I think he's been presented one by the WWF. It's considered when, not if. He will start for him. His debut depends upon his gimmick, which hasn't been determined yet. Several gimmicks are being considered, and all of them feature Dustin in a heel role. I think he got the right one. <laughs> sure. To say. Eventually, he turned out that way. Yeah, I think he got the right one. No doubt. WF's taking the heart to Hemsley imitation of Lord Stephen Regal a step further. Skits have been taped with Hearst, like Hearst, <laughs> teaching Mantar how to eat. I think this is just a WWF magazine uh, thing. Yeah. And Glenn Jacobs on the contract to WWF, although a start date could be a ways off. He's currently in SMW as Unibomb. 
Well, it's going to be starting in some form in a few weeks as the Dr. Isaac uh, Yankum. Yeah. DDS. Yes. Not DMD, but DDS. Which apparently it's really just the same thing. I remember when AEW was getting started, I asked, and apparently the explanation is DMD. You would think almost on paper that it might be a more advanced degree. It's not. It's just that, like, when Harvard started a dental school, they found it uncouth or something to be the same as other dentists, so they invented DMD. But it's really just the same thing. Well, there you go. No slight to Brit, but apparently it's basically the same thing. All right, let's go to the land of the rising sun now, and all Japan Pro Wrestling leads off, where Akira Tawa and Toshikawa captured the double tag titles from Mr. Hamasawa and Kinokabashi in 4237 on June the 9th. Before oh, 6'9", six, you say, of 95? Before the sale of 16,300 at Budokan Hall in Tokyo. In the final, Kawada pin Masawa with a powerbomb, which they believe will be the first clean job in singles or tags that Masawa has done since when he lost the Triple Crown to Dr. Death Williams almost one year ago. This match is on television in two parts, the first half airing on June 11th and part two on June 18th. This would seem to almost surely set up Masawa to defend the Triple Crown against Kawada, which would be the biggest match of the year for this promotion on July 24th at Budokan. It's pretty much a web match show. It's Stan Hansen pin Kamala 2 in the semi, and Dan Crawford retained the PWF Junior title pinning Rob Van Dam. All right, results. Masao in a way and money in a way over Monica Mossman and Mitsuo Moto in your opener. Satoru Sako over Mike Anthony. Kentaro Shiga, Shishikuchi, Yoshinarigawa over Tomon Honda, Junakayama, Takamori. Johnny Ace and the Patriot over Doug Furness and Bobby Duckham Jr. Abdul the Butcher, Jayat Baba, and Rush Kamura over Rikaku Zamita, Ruka Egan, and Masafuchi. Then Crawford over Van Dam, Hanson over Kamala 2, and then Kawada and Tawai beating Masawa Kabashi with the titles. Now let's go to Dave's TV review. Akira Tawai and Toshiko Kawada won the titles from Masawa and Kabashi. They only aired a few clips of the first 21 minutes and the entire 21 minutes, the second part of the match. So not a two part show. <laughs> As Dave was projecting, didn't happen. This is every bit as good, if not better, than their January match. Thus far, in my opinion, Dave said matches with Kawada and Kabashi are the top top three for matches of the year. This being no worse than second. Masawa Kabashi so most of the way during the second half after Taiwan gave Masawa another Watoshi choke slam, and he landed on Kabashi's injured hamstring. Kabashi was on the floor, and they traded off on Masawa until Kawada went with a stretch plum, but Kabashi made the save. They did most of their usual spots, did a better job of teasing and dramatizing them. Kawada used a bad driver on Masawa at about 30 minutes, but Kabashi managed to tag in. Masawa used a German suplex, Tiger suplex, and Tiger driver on Kawada, with Kawada kicking out the first two, and Tawe saving on the third. Tawe gave Masawa a Nodawa, and then another Nodawa off the ropes. Kawada used a spin kick to the chin instead of Tawe doing a Nodawa off the apron to the floor. Kawada used powerbomb Masawa, while Tawe used a Nodawa on Kabashi, but Masawa kicked out. Kawada went for a second power bomb, but Masawa flipped him over. At the end, Tawa used Nodawa again. Kawada kicked him to the chin. Backdrop driver. Winning, set the winning power bomb. Five plus stars. And yes, when Dave would give it five stars plus, he has said. He meant that literally. So there you go. Yes. There's your six. Um, well, not necessarily six, but definitely more than five. <laughs> um, so... 
I think you agree with me on this. You know, look, this is the match that ended up with the rep of being the greatest tag team match of all time. Did we ever figure out if this was ever actually marketed as the greatest tag match of all time in Japan or if the singles the year before had been marketed as the greatest match of all time? Or was that like an American tape trader? Tape Amer- Amer- I think it's a, that's, a, that's an American thing. Yeah. Okay. That said, I mean, of the main event tags, this is my favorite of the 90s ones. And I don't think there can be any real disagreement of, on this. If you're not familiar with 90s All Japan, I think this match is the gateway drug. Because as Dave kind of alludes to, the character stuff here is so strong. You watch this match before you watch some of the other stuff, you get where all four guys stand relative to each other and how their personalities play off of each other in a way that I don't think you do if you come in with any of the other Four Pillars matches. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. The perfect, you know, the perfect example is that spot Dave mentions where Taue chokeslams Masawa onto Kabashi's knee. Kabashi has this ridiculous knee brace on during this match. Not only does he do the stupid heelish thing, Kawada then just points and starts laughing maniacally at Kabashi. While Kabashi's crying and selling his ass off over the knee injury and stuff. And it, it's it's just this perfect like character establishing moment that you don't get in a lot of the big all Japan matches. You know? Like and for me personally, this is the one where it clicked for me. I had seen some other All Japan, maybe weren't the best matches to start with, like the Carnival Final from earlier in the year with the Masawa and Taue. But this one of the main event, and again, I'm stressing the main event style matches because I feel like, you know, the All Asian tags are a different style and more American friendly with the psychology and everything. But of that King's Road main event style, I think this is the match to watch if you're not familiar with it already. And then you can kind of work forwards and backwards from there. Um, of that style, I mean, it definitely is the best. Um, and I haven't watched it in a long time. Right now I'm rewatch. I'm in 92 in my rewatching. And... <sighs> Tell you what, <laughs> I've seen some matches in this 91-92 run that I may prefer over that one. And again, I'll get back to it, you know. It's been a long time since I watched it. But holy shit. Of tags or period? Tags. Jumbo and Tawe tags against Masao and Kawada. Mm. Um, Jumbo and Tawe against Masao and Kabashi. Um, just Wow. Just wow on some of this stuff, you know. I mean, and it, it's got the different dynamic. See, that's the thing too. That of the early '90s era of all Japan compared to this mid '90s all Japan, totally different dynamic. The jumbo dynamic and that layer of the story adds something that's a different element to the heat. Now, this it has a Masawa Kawada element to the heat. So you have that. So there's something different in that regard. Well, and but, stronger stronger heel work compared to the rest of the feud, too. 
in this but one. The thing, the thing is, though, is that the difference, though, with this era here, though, is it's more about the big bombs. You know, the big bomb throwing moves, as we mentioned here. Um, I mean, they were doing some bomb throwing, too, in the Jumbo era, but it was more about the storytelling and stuff like that. They weren't dropping people on their heads. You know, I mean, you weren't you weren't really getting that. Um, and the heat, just, 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 the heat's just fucking insane. I watched the match today. It it was uh, July twenty six ninety two. Um, make sure on that. Um, it's a six man tag. Uh, is it Corican? Let me find it here. Uh, July 21st on Brody, Brody Memorial Night. Um, it was Tawe, Fuchi, and Ogawa against Kikuchi, Kabashi, and Masawa. And Masawa, it's a match where Masawa hurts his arm, landing wrong on a, on a top rope dive. Oh my God. The heat. And Jumbo's taking the tour off. So he's not even on the whole tour. But the heat for that fucking match, and which they have to stop because Masawa's too hurt to continue. Then they restarted with Kawada in his spot. Oh my God. The heat's insane. And it's Taiwei Fuji and Ogawa. And they are so fu- Fuji is such a fucking asshole in this match, too. Oh, Jesus. It's amazing character work in that match. And that's the thing that of that mid nineties, all Japan. And again, I haven't watched it in a long time and I'm getting my way back into it, but it seems to me that the mid nineties and late nineties character work is not on par with the early nineties character work. It's more about the spectacle and the mat of the matches of you know, the big bombs. No, I would absolutely he, agree with that. And that's why I think the June 95 match stands out so much. So I think to go to your, to get to your point though, of suggesting this as a, as like a gateway match, I would, the gateway match is six, eight, 90. Oh, Jump if you want to give them a storytelling jumping off point. Absolutely. That's where you begin and you go from there. So, I mean, but, I mean, this is an amazing match, and it's one of the greatest matches of all time. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, there's, there's no debate in that regard. Um, it's probably it's probably the second greatest match of that era behind 6-3-94, but that's, you know, that's the big singles. So I mean, I, I, like, I like the tag better. <laughs> it's debatable. I mean, it could go either way. It could go either way. Yeah. But, but I mean, you can't really go wrong with either one. Yeah. But, again, you know, it's just that that early era of the 90s, the Jumbo era, has been slept on for so long. And it's probably the best. It probably is the best. Because so. there's such a strong heel, baby face, ty- baby face, baby face dynamic between Saruta Goon. And you get, well, you also get a mixed, you also get a mixture of talent. Like well, and you have the hour-long hour TV show, too, so you're seeing more. Yeah, but you're getting Fuchi Ogawa, Fuchi Ogawa and Kikuchi getting involved. Yes. 
and it adds this completely different element. Yeah. Where it's not just revolving around four guys and then Akayama, you know, getting thrown in. Five guys. Yes. Basically. You know? But, yeah, I mean... And what else can you say? I mean, it's, it's just the, uh, one of the all-time classic matches. And, on top of all that, who knows how well that Danny Crawford-Rob Van Dam match would be remembered if it was on any other show. Yeah, now here's I mean, the th- question. That is, I mean, I think you'd agree with me on this. That's certainly of this era, it's the best junior heavyweight title match. Of the, that era we're talking about there in the, the mid-90s? Yeah, post-Fuji, basically. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And it's um, definitely one of the standouts, period. And it's I mean, it's an amazing Crawford performance because, I mean, it's 1995 Rob Van Dam. He is not a complete worker. No. But no. it's one of the best matches of the year. But here's the question. Mm. What I, so that's what we talked about two weeks ago. Kabashi Kikuchi and the Can-Ams. And then you got this match. Where What do you think? If I was going to pick one or the other to watch right now, it would be 92. It would be KMs versus Kabashi and Kikuchi. There you go. <laughs> I agree. I mean, it's half as long, too. But, but, but still, but it, it has... It just has that extra dynamic. You know? But it's also more of an Americanized tag team match, too. It's easy. But it's the, the crowd, type of... The, no, I agree. The crowd, the crowd heat, the storytelling... But it's hard you know, to compare because they're worked very differently, but it's like – I feel like the all-Asian stuff is more able to be like comfort food wrestling though. Yeah. But, I mean, you can't go – I guess you can't go wrong with either one, nope. but – and like I said, I'm, I'm working my way to this this era here, so we'll get there eventually. Right now I'm summer 92. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but, yeah, I mean, it's uh, – it's some of the greatest stuff ever, ever made. Yeah, ever, ever, you know, in the wrestling ring. So, and I can't think, I can't really th- think of anybody that's probably listening to the show that hasn't seen that match. I mean, I'm sure there probably are, but I mean, yeah, you never it's know. such a, it's such a memorable match for so many reasons, you know, and just one that's always been talked about. For all those years, now 28 years ago. And it's a match that if you were online a certain era, someone says the date and you know exactly what they're talking about. Yeah. All right, let's go to New Japan now, where there's a lot of good shit going on here too, but nobody talked about. Most of the week was geared towards building up the Battle of the Moonsaults. With Keiji Muto against Hiroshi Tenzan, where the Luzu can no longer use the move on June 14th of Budokan. On June the 7th, Fukuyama, during the main event, Riki Choshi returned, teaming with Mudo and Osamu Kido to beat Murdering, Masuro Chono, Hiroshi Tenzan, Hiro Saito, and upset when Kido made Saito submit with the Fujiwara armbar. During the match, Mudo juiced for Chono and Tenzan. The next night, Nokoyama, Mudo had a singles match with Mike Enos in the main event. The match was said to be pretty bad. Mudo screwed the Frankenstein that he was supposed to win with. Mudo bled again. After the match, which Mudo eventually won, Tenzan ran in and beat on Mudo, including giving him a moonsault and covered him, and counting the pin, claiming to be the real IWGP champion. Ah, uh, yes, the Battle of the Moonsaults, which <laughs> neither one quits using the moonsault, so there you go. <laughs> I mean, they for a little while they play up that Tenzan's moonsault is illegal, 
And he does it behind the referee's back and stuff. But that goes by the wayside pretty quickly. Yeah. Biggest show of the week was June the 12th in Osaka at a soccer professional gym, which drew 66.50, about 200 shy of capacity. Mudo pinned Kensuke Sasaki in the main event with a moonsault, so Mudo scored a clean sweep during the tour of his singles matches. Going to the Budokan. So Mudo in a row beat stunning Steve Austin, Arn Anderson, Mike Enos, Ron Simmons, and Kensuke Sasaki. Not bad. As expected, Shono and Tenzan captured the vacant IWGP tag titles. The last champions were Mudo and Hase, who gave them up when Mudo won the IWGP singles title. Beating Shiyashimoto and Junji Harada in 1744 when Shono pinned Hashimoto. Both junior champs retained their titles as Sabu kept the IWGP junior title, beating Black Tiger, Eddie Guerrero, who missed most of the tour of the injury suffered early on. And it must have been serious because they pretty much make you work in Japan unless you can't walk, and sometimes even then. He returned on the 10th. In 1550, and Coach Kanemoto retained UWA Junior title to make a grand amount of cement on arm lot in 1308. Setting up time unification on the 14th with Kanemoto and Sabu. Full results. El Samurai over Tatsuzakiwa in Yopter. Dimaliko Norianaga over Shinjiro Tani and Tokumichu Sasawa. Akira Nagami and Tadayu Suda over Takuki Zuka and Yuji Nagata. Masa Saito and Riki Choshu over Arn Anderson and Steve Austin. That's a match. Coach Kanemoto over Grand Hamada. Sabu over Black Tiger, Tenzan over Harada Hashimoto, and Mudo over Sasaki. Now, speaking about Arn and Austin, they were at the final week in the middle, mainly in tags of either Sim- Simmons and Enos as partners. In Osaka, they lost to Choshu and Saido when they had Saido up in arm with two side su- suplexes. Austin did score singles wins over Manama Nakanishi and Takuki Azuka while getting pinned in the tag by Hashimoto's DDT. Oh, Arn, Arn Anderson in, one, in some of his rare New Japan work. Yeah. He only went over a couple of times. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. There you go. All right, Big Japan Pro Wrestling. Let's get to Indie Scum. They ran Hakata Starlands on June 7th for 2300. Ichiro Yaguchi over Masiko Kochi. Giant Korea over Seiji Yamakawa. King Sopo over Yuchitana Gucci. Bruiser Okamoto over Hanson, not Hanson, Hanson. Yoshak Yasun Samateri Nishi over Randy Phillips and gentleman Chris Adams. And then Kendo Nagasaki beat Greg Valentine in a no-row barbar death match. Sure. Yeah, Greg the Hammer doing some death matches here. How about that? Well, if George South can do it. He was a trendsetter. Uh, I don't think this match is online, is it? Probably uh, not. Oh, there's a YouTube GIF or clip or something. I mean, not a Twitter. Probably the biggest news of the week in Japan was he announced that Dan Severn would be defending his NWA title against Tarzan Goto on August 20th for the IWA Japan Kawasaki Baseball Stadium show. Victor Canonis put the deal together with Phyllis Lee, Severn's manager, with Terry Funk apparently working as an intermediary. You know, the NWA title was at stake. His deal was actually broken in Japanese newspapers for Dennis Corluzo. You found out about it. Eh. I wonder who told however, Dave that. <laughs> however, Quinones smoothed over whatever ruffled feathers there may have been by agreeing to join the NWA and by sending Goto, Yoshiro Tajiri, and Takashi Okano to Corluzo's house show on June 24th. Well, that'll do it. We don't know much else in the way of details other than Severin was offered less money to wrestle for IWA than he was by New Japan. However, Nietzsche wanted him to put Keiji Muto over on the first tour. 
one would think Seven Stock credibility for USC would fit it better with rigged UWFI bad craze rather than the brawling heavy juice gimmicks promotion. This all started in the final IWA tour where Goto was wrestling Leatherface. After the two had double, double count out, Katniss Jack and Bad Breed, actually and Rotten, attacked Goto, which wound up with Goto challenging Cactus. They had the match at 10 minutes, there was no contest when Goto attacked Victor Quinones. They had the match at. And that's, well, I already read that. Um, in the dressing room, Goto didn't interview Chancellor Quinones to sign seven because the NBA title has the most history behind it of any world title. There's a lot of talk that Terry Funk will be at USC 6 in Japan. No, excuse me, be at USC 6 for Japanese photo ops with Dan Severn. All right, this show that this on this took place that was on June 7th in Nagano City Gym. We have Keizo Matsuda over at Daisuke Taue. Bob Barragale over Yuki Shugawara. Oh, were you wanting uh, ass? Yes. Thank you. Takashi Okano and Leon defeated Yoshiro Tajiri and Tudor the Turtle. Mr. Gunnisuke and Flying Kichihara beat the Bad Breed, Ian and Axel Rotten. Leatherface double count out with Tarzan Goto. Katniss double DQ with Tarzan Goto. And Shoji Nakamaki, Hiroshi Ono, and Keisuke Yamada over Katniss Jack, Crypto Keeper, and Tracy Smothers in your main event. That's a show with wrestlers on it. I, I wish I was uh, part of, privy to those uh, fierce negotiating sessions between Fita Quinones and Phyllis Lee. <laughs> I'm sure that was something to behold. Yeah. So Dan Severn didn't go to New Japan because he didn't want to job the Mudo. So there's that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it takes a pay cut to go hit IWA. Uh, well, it's not a pay get, cut if you didn't get paid in the first place. Well, yeah. Dennis gets uh, Tajiri, Goto, and Okano on his shows. Yes, which leads to the Tajiri uh, Severn NWA title match. So, um, yeah, quite the maneuvering is going on here in IWA Japan. Yeah. Victor is uh, greasing the wheel here. Yeah, I'm not going to go anywhere with that one. <laughs> Bob Bear get one, though, I guess. But uh... Uh, I mean, Bob Bear actually did have potential, though. It's not like he didn't. He was a hell of an athlete. He could do interesting stuff in the ring. But Yeah. Michinoku Pro, they were in Miyagi Professional Sports Center on June 10th from front of 323. Grand Naniwa and Talisman Jr. over... Excuse me, Grand 91 over Tyson Jr. The Joker and Yoni Genjin over Wellington Wilkins Jr. and Masato Okasuji. Super Delphin over Shiru Kasayashi. And Takabichinochu, Takabichinochu, Shoichi Fanaki and Doc Dean over Grace Sasuke, Hanzo Nakajima, and Nero Hoshikawa. Okay. Well, I guess this is Good old the Do- Doc Dean. early part of the uh, working green between Mishinoku Pro and Brian Dixon's All-Star Wrestling. Who just recently passed away. Rest in peace, Brian Dixon. But, yeah, uh, I mean, you know, people should look up what John Lister tweeted. I think he included his bio that he had written of Dixon for Finding Spirit previously. But, like, I mean, you can make an argument that outside of, like, the Onita scale of things, I mean, he might very well be the greatest independent wrestling promoter of all time. Well, I mean, he's got a long track record of, of being in business, which a lot of people don't have. I mean, he basically started a work rate indie, 
and got it on TV, taking away TV time from the establishment promotion. And then, even after TV was gone, he offered one of the few places that wrestlers could, you know, not for a lot of money, but where wrestlers could actually work full-time and improve their craft working, you know, multiple shows a week with the holiday camp deal. Yeah. Um... As far as what else is on here, who's the Joker? Cesar Romero. Oh, will you stop. <laughs> now, who the hell would Talisman Jr. be here, though? Because Talisman Jr. is Mascara Maica, but he's already Mascara Maica at this point. Yes. All right, so let's see here. Let's see if we can find out who's who and what's what. All right, so um, Talisman is Mascara Maica. Or at least that's what Cage Match says. The Joker has no uh, profile on Cage Match. Let me go to Wrestling Data and see what they say. Doc Dean. Doc Dean would be really young here. Wouldn't he be like 16? Uh, No. He's uh, 25. Okay, he's younger than I thought. I mean, older than I thought. Let's see here. Alright, so Michinoku Pro. I completely right. forgot Takin passed away a few years ago. The Joker is not does not have a wrestling data. And uh Talisman Jr. is Mascara Mahika on that one too. So who knows? Well, I guess it's either possible. they're wrong or he got brought in here. I mean, do we have results for him as Mas- well it's Mexico in the nineties, so who knows? Well, either way. Alright, so Pancrace. They're in June 13th for Sapporo for 4880, with Minoru Suzuki beating Michael Papadaroff on top, while Frank Shamrock beat Yusuke Fuke for his kickboxing title at the Anaheim Pond this week. You mean kickboxing? Kick, title match. Yeah, kickboxing title match. And Boz Rutten beat Jason DeLucia with a leg lock in uh, 92 seconds. King Wayne Shamrock missed the show, claiming a knee injury, but it appears it was just so he wouldn't miss training time for the Severn match. It also gives him an out in Japan in case he should lose. Well, there you go. All right, full results of this show. Takafumi Ito over Osami Shibuya. Manabe Yamada over Vernon Tiger White. Katsumi Inagaki over Toon Stelling. That's a hell of a Dutchman name there. <laughs> Maskas Fanaki over Gregory Schmidt. Boss Root number Jason Delucia, Sh- Frank Shamrock over Fuke, and Minoru Suzuki, Suzuki, Minoru Suzuki over Larry Papadopoulos. Not Michael Papadaro. <laughs> okay. <laughs> sure. How do you get that mixed up? So there's Pancras. What did he have Webster in his corner? <laughs> Excuse me, that's I- George. Yes. Was man right. there, though? <laughs> hey, you know that, uh, yeah, Alice Karras and Susan Clark were married in real life. Yes. 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 I, I, Susan I, Clark, it, who it, played it, the... Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Uh, I don't know. I was going to say, it makes you wonder about the episode where Webster walks in on them uh, in the act. Well, and, and Susan Clark also played the the hooker on, in Porky's. Oh, that, God. That great... That great scene in Porky's. <laughs> oh, what a classic. 
All right, and we close Japan out with JWP. They ran Corken Hall on June 11th from 2000. Tomoko Miyaguchi over Tomoko Kazumi. Reiko Amano over Tomoko Miyaguchi. Honya over Tomoko Kazumi. A lot of Tomokos on this show. Kazumi twice, though. Well, was Miyaguchi twice. What am I saying? Uh, Kenya Kutsu and Fusayo Nochi went to a 30-minute draw with Hiromi Yagi and Hiromi Shugo. So two Hiromis, too. Hikari Fukuoka and Yashiko Kurakagi over Sumio Toyama and Tomomi Kobayashi. And Del Masami and Dynamite Kanzai over Mayumi Ozaki and Kuni Suzuki in your main event. Decent looking show there. Um, mm. This is in the era of the uh, kind of sort of trying to market Kuni Suzuki and Mayumi Ozaki as lesbian lovers era. Of JWP, which is a thing that happened. Yes. Yeah. They were ahead of their time, I guess, Bix. Yes, they were. <laughs> well, who would have been the Tommy Dreamer in that situation? <laughs> you don't have one. It's JWP. <laughs> but if they would have had a male wrestler, who <laughs> Or do we default to uh, the future Carlos Amano because of her name? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> All right, let's make this completely international now. Let's go to Mexico and AAA. We don't have complete details of the press time on, from the first of three Tremania shows in Mexico on June the 10th in Orotaba. The show drew about 12,500 fans, which was a few hundred shot capacity. Main storyline throughout the show was beginning of a heavy push for a AAA versus Promel feud. Promel is the new dummy wrestling corporation created by Antonio Pena. With Wesley Guerrero as the leader during the early part of this year. Okay. Several wrestlers, mainly almost all the top talent from UWA, aside from Kinect and Grand Hamada, jumped to Pena and were grouped into Promel's sort of promotion versus promotion feud that Pena liked uh, from having seen the angle work previously in Japan. Even though they were built as being from different organizations, there really hasn't been much made of late of an actual feud. On this show, for us, the second at all, the Promel teams using the Promel flags as gimmick frequently interfering in matches. Team Promel worked as Rudos and in matches with clean finishes took clean sleep of all four matches. Three of those matches were El Signo, Negonovaro, and Rambo, El Missionario Rambo beating Torero, El Mexicano, and Dragon de Oro. Los Fianos, who looked great, beat Los Payasos in an excellent match. Shua Guerrero, Scorpio Jr., and the Killer over Lise Martin Jr., and Latin Lover. Latin Lover came on a few other guys doing a Village People Light Ring entrance. Leighton Lover's gimmick in the United States would get over like Alex Wright times two. Yeah, he could have. Then we had the uh, Puestas matches. Uh, winners in Super Calo faced Marabunta and Angel Matong, which losing team had to wrestle each other in a Mascara Cocha Mascara match, which wound up with a strange ending as both Calo and Mortal were pinned. So then they face off in a singles match where Calo pinned Mortal. This set up winners versus Marabunta in a Mascara Cocha Mascara match for the next Tremania show on June 18th in Guadalajara, which winners will no doubt win. Leading to a winners Colo match for their mask on June 25th in Madero. The other game match was the main event. A 14 minis cage of death battle royal where the object was climb out and escape and last man left in the ring would get lose either his mask or his hair. It wound up with Peter Tito Morgan losing, getting his head shaved. What a shock. Main event was Conan, Paraguayo, and Otagon and La Parca against uh, Cien Carlos, Moscow, Pentagon, and Jerry Estrada. 
Before this match, there was a near riot. Pedro Guardiola Jr. came out with his father and was attacked by Fuerza Guerrero. Perito made his own comeback, and some ringside fans got into it, helping him out, causing Fuerza to deck at least one fan before the police got involved. The Technicals won with Conan Penn, Cien Carlos clean in the middle of the, the double singles title. Cien is UWA champion, and Moscow is Smith's IWC champion, defending his Pedro and Conan. And if either champ loses in the third fall, the guy who pins him gets their belt for June 18th. Dave told this was a good match. And overall, it's a good but not great show by AAA standards. All right, full results. La Nazi. Yes, La Nazi was a gimmick well into the 2000s. Botavilla Lobos and Neftali over Irma Aguilar, Irma Gonzalez, and La Serenita. Then we have uh, a missionary of Mount Rambo, Signo Negarovava, Dragon de Oro, Americano, and Torero. The Vianos, 3, 4, and 5 over the Piazzos, Coco Amarillo, Coco Azul, and Coco Rojo about disqualification. Killer Scorpio Jr. Show Guerrero with Latin Lover, these Martin Tedemus Jr. Then we had the Marabuta winners on a Matosa Bacalo deal. And then the Atomicos. Oh, Atomico's. so Dave got that wrong in the original, in his write up. Yes. Yeah, Marabunta see, winners over on Homartal and Super Colo Relevo Suicida. No, that seems that. wrong too. No, that seems. The cage match, or well, not cage match, Lucha TP feels like it should be wrong too, because if the mass. Why no are Marabuntin winners? It's Relevo Suicidas. So the losing team faced off in the singles match for their mask. That's what. That's the way Lucha Wiki's got it here. It's right. But how the did that team, set up? The, the losing team in a Relevo Suicidas match. No, I know that. Face off in the singles match. But how does that set up winners Marabunta then? I don't. I get. I don't know. I don't know. Pixel. You understand what I'm saying? I, I I just don't know. I don't know. I don't know. And then you had your cage match, which has Payasito Rojo losing, not Piratito Morgan. Hmm. But there's no Piratito Morgan in this match. So maybe it was Payasito Rojo. I don't know. What? Well, let's how talk about how that. does that get lost? In- well, let's continue because we have the uh, next week's report. Uh, reports that the crowd was actually uh, 14,000. We reported 12,500 last week because it was late arriving. Also, the loser of the meetings Battle Royal was at Piratito Morgan. Well, actually, it was. But Payasito Rojo, the red-haired mini-clown who they believe was the original Peter Tito Morgan when he unmasked. At the expert Trito, <laughs> number one, climbed out of the cage. He stuck around ringside. When the technicals tried to escape, he climbed the cage and pounded them back into the ring. Finally, Octagon hit the ring and carried him to the dressing room. And so yes, that is one. original Peter Tito Morgan. Yeah. So Dave was right, but wrong. Yes. So, yeah, another Tripmania show on uh, Between the Sheets. We've had a few of them lately. Yes. We'll, have one ne- we'll have one next week, too. More on that later. Uh, Monterey, the next night, June 11th, regular TV taping. Drew us up 5,500, Lucha DB at 6,000. We saw Patrita de Ring and Latin Lover keep the next national tag titles, beating Fuerza Guerrero and Humanito Guerrero. Then June 12th in Nuevo Laredo, drew 10,000. For Conan the Vianos against the Dinamitas and Jerry Estrada. On a Monterey card, the Dinamitas and Angle where they attack Yo de Paraguayo. All right, full results of Monterey. Aguilar del Cerro, Marquez Jr., and Sergio Romo Jr. wins against Carlos Fagata Jr., Mayflowers, and Pepinel Escalada. Speaking of, like I've been saying, I've been watching uh, 1992 Japan. Uh, 1992 New Japan, Mayflowers, and Pepinel Escalada did a tour over there. Yep. And uh, one of their matches made 
television. Entertaining as shit. <laughs> uh, have you seen that, Bix? I don't think so. Uh, let me see who it was they wrestled against. Black Cat and Samurai. Okay. Which makes sense considering him and who they who's in the ring. Yeah. Two guys that definitely know how to work that style. Fans love Mayflowers and, Pimp- and Pimpy, especially Mayflowers. I mean, you, you see how good Mayflowers was before Mayflowers got into some uh, some issues over the years. Um, Mr. Condor. Dos Diabolicos. Be Aguila del Soro, Super Cologne winners. Fishman have met all Jerry Strong and Picudo Sicosis. So, yes, so we got a five on five here over Scorpio Jr., Shua Guerrero, and Naviano. Three, four, and five by disqualification. Then we have Latin Lover Patricio de Ringo, Fresno Hubi. And then Cien Carlos Pascal, Mysterioso Universal Mill over Conan La Parca, Paraguayo, and Volador. Rudy Reina quit to join UWA. Why would uh, you do a... that? <laughs> in 1995, in June 1995. Well, AAA and UWA are basically working together in a way. So, Well, okay, so uh, we didn't get to talk about the Pro Bell thing, by the way, which is like, Dave is wrong, though. It's not a dumb yes. promotion. It is a real promotion. Yes. It's just friendly with AAA. Yes, because, at this time. Yes, it ends up becoming Promo Azteca. It's the same company. Yeah. Antonio Pena had meetings this past week with Carlos Mañez and Kinect of the UWA about talent exchanges and when Ron Skull in L.A., but then Definitive came out. So why would you quit? I don't know. Let's move on to uh, CMLL. Yeah, CMLL. June 9th, in Mexico, continuing the Redolisco Junior Apollo Dante's feud. This time with Rayo, team with Vampiro, Caradiense, and Dos Caras to lose to Dante's, Gran Marcus Jr., and Dr. Wagner Jr., Dantes and Ryo both bled heavily before Dantes covered in blood fouled Ryo for the pin. There was great heat whenever the two were in the room with each other, so the feud's starting to get over. In the semifinal, Atlantis, Ultimo Dragon, and Pantera beat Emilio Chavez Jr., Satanico, and Chaos, win Dragon Pin Chaos. Full results. Orito and Petrito win against Filanito and Perofito. Oglio Solitaria, Los Sombro, and Ultimatum win against Damiano Guerrero, Guerrero de Futuro, and Guerrero de Maya. Olimpico Oro 2 Shocker, whom is Asher Jr., Felino Hakon Negro. We have Atlantis, Pantera, and Ultimo Dragon, beating Emilio Torres Jr., Chaos and Satanico. And Atlantis, Wagner, and Marcus over Dos, Rayo, and Vampiro. And in June 13th, Rene Calceo, in front of 500 fans, we have a Caballero Coach Caballero match where Chicago Express beats Ciclone Ramirez, taking his hair. Now, was it a Tessera just for tradition? Uh, well, there's no other results, so maybe. <laughs> I doubt it. It's a, it's a it's an Apuestas match, so I doubt it. I know, I know. But anyway, it's halftime. So some great 1995 commercials. We have to the halftime seven of the show, where we'll talk about Patreon. We'll hit some plugs. Talk about our streaming partners. And then come back for a pretty large independent section where we have lots of news on ECW. We'll have uh, some clips from ECW. We got uh, Smoky Mountain to talk about. Gangsters leaving there. And major nostalgia shows in Memphis. All that more after the break. 
I just can't afford the car I want. Your Chrysler Plymouth dealer now has three ways to save during our biggest sale in history. Get big cash back, or our lowest APR, or our lowest leases ever. Say hi and lease an award-winning Plymouth Neon for only $179 a month. Or get 1.9% APR or $600 cash back. We hear you. Our biggest sale ever at your Chrysler Plymouth dealer. Think healthy, shiny hair only happens in the movies? It can happen every day. Pantene's Provitamin Formula penetrates root to tip, improving the whole length of your hair. Pantene Pro-V Shampoo and Conditioner. For hair so healthy it shines. Now what do you say? AT&T, this is Carla. Carla, this calling circle thing is too much for me. The TV ads, they're calling me at home. My terrier is less tenacious. You want AT&T True Savings. Yeah? It's AT&T's simplest way to save 25%. Good, because I want simple. Sign up, make $10 in calls a month, and we'll subtract 25% off your AT&T bill. 25% off to who? To anybody. Anybody? Anybody in the U.S. All right, you signed me up, because, you know, I just... Are you married? AT&T True Savings. Save 25% to anybody, anytime, anywhere. Your true voice. How race car driver Bill Elliott eats a Reese's peanut butter cup. Awesome. Clear! There's no wrong way to eat a Reese's. Plymouth dealer offers our biggest cash back ever, or our lowest interest rates ever, or our lowest lease rates ever. On Plymouth Neon, Chrysler LHS, Concord, New Yorker, LeBaron Convertible, even the car of the year, Chrysler Cirrus. We hear you, and we've got your number. Our biggest sale ever at your Chrysler Plymouth dealer now. This is Safeguard Season, a season for germs. It's a fact of life. Germs are going to get you. But Safeguard Antibacterial Soap eliminates more than 99% of germs. Safeguard against germs. Germs, we got you. What's it like to experience Skittles? The combinations. Combinations of fruit flavor. In every bag of Skittles bite-sized candy. It's a wallop of fruit. A wallop? A wallop. Lemon, lime, and grape. So this would be a fruity box you bang. Now add an orange. And it's a king's head. Box you bang. Every Skittles combination is a new experience. A caddy whopper. A double dodecathon. A fruit. How do you describe a Skittles experience? You decide. Taste the rainbow of fruit flavor. It's a fruit kerfluffle. Every time. <laughs> Are you looking for your favorite downy? Mountain Spring. Sunrise. Downy Spring. Look for the new blue bottles with bright colored caps. Mountain Spring. It's easy. Downy. New blue bottles. Same great sense. Mountain Spring. The caps will tell you. I can talk. Can you?
Timex Indigo Nightlight. No woman should be without one. Hope you enjoyed all those great 1995 commercials as a fifth and a half time seven of the show. We're going to talk about our Patreon, patreon.com slash between the sheets, where we will be begin recording part two of our two part series on Andrew Menace's WWA right after we record this segment. So uh, that should be interesting as we'll pick up where we left off in the beginning of 2002. And uh, talking about the pay-per-view airing in the United States and uh, going from there, talking about their show in Las Vegas, and we'll go to uh, go to the end of the promotion. So it uh, should be quite the show. So listen to part one if you haven't listened to it already. That was the show we did last month, patreon.com slash sheets, five dollars a month. Gets you access to that, plus all the other shows that we've done in our almost seven complete years of the Patreon. We're just about there. It's getting close. So, uh, everybody go check that out. Great deal for your money. $5 a month, all that audio. Ain't much better than that. So, uh, if you haven't done it, get on it. If you've done it, dropped off, come back. Yes. And if you like Santos Escobar doing the Paul Heyman delivery, when quoting Paul Heyman, then, well, you'll love some of the podcasts we have. Yeah, we've done a lot of Paul Heyman shows. So, again, patreon.com slash twin the sheets, five dollars a month. Now, a dollar a month gets you access to the Discord and thanks to this segment. $25 lets you pick a show for the week. As we've had a few of those recently. So, uh, if you want to do that, have two shows in mind because the show that you may want may be something that somebody else has uh, picked on the calendar or it could be a show that we've uh, already done maybe in the past that you've finally forgot about. So uh, let us know where you want to do the show, and we'll get back with you and let you know if that's feasible, and then we'll go from there. Now remember, follow the protocol on the Patreon website to get this information to us. Get 10-year rules in effect, 30-day rules in effect, Wednesday, Tuesday on the timeline, all that stuff, and you should be good to go to have your show on the air. $50 I send for same with the show and 100 for the whole show. You don't have to, but it's part of the... Uh, perk of getting that package so patreon.com slash between the sheets all right since we didn't do this last week we got two weeks worth of uh people to talk about so fix who are our new and or returning patrons all right we would like to thank for his uh switching over to annual adam savage thanks adam and then who else do we have uh, andrew jones Oh, the uh, great uh, Atlanta Brave baseball player. Thank you, Andrew Jones. Not spelled that way. Oh, okay. Rich Moulton. Thanks, Rich. Jesse P. Thanks, Jesse. Nick. Thanks, Nick. Nick Hahn? No. And Ian Stewart. Thanks, Ian. So we thank all you new patrons, old patrons, patrons that have been there from the beginning, stay, once left, come back. We thank you. We thank everybody for their support on patreon.com slash between the sheets. All right, Bix, uh, let's talk about our streaming service, friends. So what's going on this week in the world of IWTV and Fight TV? 
All right, we'll start with AWTV. Um, real quick, I, I wanted to mention this since this is not a live stream that's upcoming by the time this comes out, but because we didn't do halftime last week, uh, I do want to mention that while it hasn't happened yet as of this recording, this past Friday night was West Coast Pro's uh, show that they renamed Kid Zombie in honor of our uh, dearly departed friend and listener, Matt Mann. And, uh, yes. That should be on demand on IWTV by the time that you hear this. Featuring matches like Starboy Charlie versus Vinny Massaro, Artemis Spencer versus Kevin Blackwood, uh, Big B versus Calvin Tankman, Brian Keith versus New Japan's Kevin Knight, Nicole Matthews versus Nicole Savoy in her first singles match in at least a couple years, and more. So, definitely going to be checking that out, you know, the day after we're recording this but it'll be up on demand by the time you hear this. And, you know, very nice to see, you know, Scott and Chris Hero and the crew West Coast Pro honoring uh, old KZ like that. Yeah. Yeah, he was a uh, a great wrestling fan, so it was uh, good to see them do that. Absolutely. Now, this coming weekend, after this comes out, there's a lot. Because, <laughs> of course, there is. I'm sure you can guess at least one promotion that's running multiple shows. ICW. Ding, ding, ding. But first, we got our dear friend Matt Griffin's uh, action wrestling with Guardians of the Southeast. Yes, there's a Guardians of the Galaxy parody logo. Well, I would hope so. Yes. I mean, shouldn't Billy Starks be more up front on the poster and not in the back of the poster? Since she's Space Jesus. Uh, I, I don't know. Well, anyway, so announced so far, what, what were you going to say? <laughs> Nothing. Okay. Uh, announced so far, main event for the Action Championship, Adam Priest defending against Brogan Finlay, Damian Tangra against Alex Kane, Anthony Henry against Rigo Gonzalez, and making her action debut, past and once again future at some point soon, between the sheets, Kaskaya McKenna making her debut against Billy Starks. Yeah, yeah. good to see Kaya getting down in the southern area here. Yes. So then, also on Friday night, ICW No Holds Barred with uh, Volume 47. Does this have a subtitle or anything? It does not look like it, no. Uh, big notable thing there is that uh, Abdullah Kobayashi is back in America again. In a main event four-way for Hoodfoot's American Deathmatch Championship that also includes Tank and Cruel. Um, is this a Chattanooga show then? No, it's Berwyn, Illinois, actually. So, yeah, is that Cruel's in-ring return after the injury, or has he been back? He was in that clip with, uh, with Kobe Carino that just happened over the, pa the past weekend. Okay, I didn't see that. That's well. That's odd to me that you didn't you didn't see that one because it was shared everywhere. Colby's okay. return to whatever that was. I forget. Get the promotion. Was it DWE or oh no? So was it uh deadlock or was it someone I else? Want something? Okay. So <laughs> I don't know. Uh, also has the rejects against Lou Fisto and Mickey Knuckles, Neil Diamond Cutter, love that name, against Nate Webb and more. Uh, Ruthless Pro Wrestling is running Saturday in the same building, uh, 4 p.m. Eastern, 
for a show that includes a main event with more deathmatch stuff. Uh, Matt Tremont versus Atticus Koger, uh, Abdullah Kobayashi and Tommy Vendetta, among other matches on the card. Then also Saturday, Saturday night at what time? 7 Eastern. Dreamwave Wrestling. Nothing but a good time live on IWTV. Main event has Christian Rose defending their title against Vic Capri in a last man standing match. Gringo Loco gets his usual showcase defending their alternative championship uh, against Io Del Vikingo, Laredo Kid, Ares, and Aramis. A uh, bunch of names up and down the card. There's Scotty Tuahati versus Florida Man. I did not get to check if Florida Man is Joey Janela doing his Florida Man gimmick or someone else. Uh, Bobby Orlando's on there. Kaya makes her Dreamwave debut against Becca. And more. So there's Dreamwave. And then there's also a Saturday No Holds Barred show, of course, too, uh, with the main event of Max the Impaler versus Lufisto. And that's also in Berwyn, Illinois. So they're doing the whole weekend there. And Reed Benley takes on Abdullah Kobayashi in the singles. And then finally, on Sunday, Prestige Wrestling, Black Sunshine in Los Angeles at the Globe Theater. So I believe the first time uh, there's ever been an IWTV stream from the Globe Theater the home of PWG these days. That's Sunday, 10 Eastern. Main event, Kevin Blackwood, Roderick Strong. That's a hell of a match on paper. Uh, Killer Kelly, Ty Valkyrie, Nick Wayne, Leo Rush, Lee Moriarty, Kevin Knight, Sandra Moon, Rina Yamashita, Motor City Machine Guns against the Rascals, uh, Team Filthy against Vinny Massaro, Jordan Grooves, and Tyler Bateman, and more. So that is a very, very uh, typically loaded prestige show. And if you want to watch all this, independentwrestling.tv, code BTSPOD at sign up, makes it that we get a referral for each month you stay a paid subscriber. And, you know, like just about everything else, $9.99 a month. So, independentwrestling.tv, code BTSPOD. And Fight TV? So, on Fight Plus, let's see. I want to make sure I have the tweets in the right order. Actually, Vam, for a second, because I forgot to plug my laptop in after it went on low battery. <laughs> oh, okay. You should, um, if you do like me, I'd never take my laptop off battery. Mine runs on battery all day long. <laughs> but anyway, all right. So uh, let's see here. I'm trying to. I'm on Fight TV, and I'm looking at the fucking damn. Uh, well, I just plugged it in. But it's all ahead. about boxing. But anyway, I'll go here. All right, so Pro Wrestling Revolver, they got a show on uh, June 17th in Dayton. Yes. Wrestling Revolver in the Ring of Destiny featuring uh, the Motor City Machine Guns versus the ABC in a grudge yeah. match. Yes, uh, Chris Bay in Ace Austin. Yes. Uh, let's see here. We got a. A golden ticket gauntlet match. We got John Moxley on the show, unannounced match. Well, it you says got, the return of John Moxley. I'm not sure if he's wrestling or not. It's a little ambiguous, but uh, Steve Macklin against. He's going to be doing it. something. Yeah. Takeshi yeah. uh, in action. Alex Cologne returning to Revolver against Crazy King. Uh, Alan Angels, Robert Martyr in a match that's billed as Revolver versus Prestige. Uh, so you have a promotion that's on fight against a promotion that's on IWTV. Uh, what else do we have here? Yeah, like you said, uh, oh, no, that's not one you mentioned. Rascal, the Rascals and a mystery partner against Second Crew and a mystery partner. 
and more. So, so that's the Revolver show. And then also GCW has on Saturday at 8. Uh, I think it's, well, wait, is that 8 local time? I believe so. Yeah, so 11 Eastern, GCW returns to Los Angeles for a show that will probably be main evented by, I would think, Zack Sabre Jr. versus Nick Gage. Yeah, that's a match. That's an interesting one on paper. I mean, yet Sabre can do his thing with different people, so I'm curious to see how that goes and how much they lean into each other's styles. Uh, Blake Christian defends his newly won GCW title against Kevin Blackwood. Uh, Yamashita takes on Maki Ito. Los Macizos against Joe Janelle and Sawyer Wreck. And more. And uh, if you're into deathmatch stuff, definitely check out uh, Tournament of Survival and Cage of Survival from last weekend on demand as well. Because both of those were very good shows. In- featuring New Japan's El Desperado in two deathmatches, including a singles with Joey. Yeah. That Despy's an interesting guy. He's a New Japan junior heavyweight who, who I believe was trained in New Japan, whose idol is Jun Kasai and... Uh, does death matches every once in a while. Yeah, he's uh, he does all kind of crap. <laughs> he definitely is. Uh, he's out there, and it's been cool to see him get his flowers the last year or so. Where you know him getting to be champion was kind of happenstance due to injuries, but I mean he was able to show off just how good he was. So, yeah, good for him. So anyway, those are the main things coming up on Fight Plus, at least. If you're not already a subscriber, you go to tinyurl.com slash btsfight. That's tinyurl.com slash btsfite. And we'll get a referral if you sign up through that link. And you can also use that for uh, buying a iPay-per-view as well. So that that's our streaming friends. And uh, don't we have something else to talk about that uh, can assist you with certain streaming friends under certain circumstances? Yeah, today's episode of Between the Sheets is sponsored by Private Internet Access, America's number one virtual private network. Even if you use incognito mode, your internet provider store in your browsing data, in the meantime, who's selling it? But Private Internet Access can help. Private Internet Access encrypts and reroutes your internet traffic to one of its own servers, hiding your data from your internet provider or network administrator. It will service in over 75 different countries. You can get unrestricted access to geoblock content from around the world. Private Internet Access comes with easy-to-use apps, a browser extensions for all devices, a rock-solid privacy policy, open-source security, advanced customization settings, and it was just ranked the fastest VPN in the world by PC Mag. If you sign up with Private Internet Access right now, you can take advantage of a special deal only for Between the Sheets listeners. We have three different uh, packages we offer for you. You can get the regular monthly package, which comes in a dollar, excuse me, eleven ninety-five a month. You get the yearly package. Which gets you down to three dollars and thirty-three cents a month, or thirty-nine ninety-five a year, or you can get the number one package, the best, three years plus four free months, get you to a dollar ninety-eight a month, seventy-nine dollars for the first three years. Yearly thereafter, eighty-three percent off, the best damn deal on the market. Why is that? Because that's so much more expensive than virtually every other VPN on the market. If you get it right now, you take advantage of Private Internet Access 30-day risk-free challenge. Try it out for 30 days. See if you like it. If not, just return it for a full refund. How you get that, you ask? Well, you go to privateinternetaccess.com slash 20 sheets and try out the best damn VPN on the planet completely risk-free. All right, next week on Between the Sheets, we'll flash forward to two years, 1997. 
where it's about Ric Flair renewing his contract with WCW on the heels of the Great American Bash pay-per-view at, at the Mark of the Quad in Moline, Illinois. A little interesting show going on there. We'll talk about that. We have Nitro in Chicago the next night, which is another interesting show for many reasons. We'll have uh, news on Dennis Rodman. We'll have news on WCW on their Germany tour. We'll have news on uh, new contract renegotiations because some of the top stars are not happy with the money that the pro athletes are getting and when they're coming in. So we'll have that in WCW. Ricky Choshu announces his retirement in Japan, New Japan. So we'll have that. Plus news on Ken Shamrock, possibly appearing for FMW. And all kind of other indie scum in Japan. We've got a Triple Mania show in AAA. So we'll have that. Talk about Eric Bischoff meeting with Paco Alonso in Mexico. Big meetings going on there. We'll talk about that. We got all kinds of indie stuff. We got a big title change in ECW. We got the beginning of the USWACW feud in Memphis with Jerry Long and Tommy Dreamer. We got Don Fry making his pro wrestling debut. We got Jesse Ventura talking about running for governor. And we got the WWF. We got a big car crash that uh, affects the careers of four guys in that wreck. And then we'll talk about the Bret Hart, Shawn Michaels war of words. We'll have that. And uh, we got raw is war. And an uh, interesting match there between Tommy Rodgers and Bobby Fulton, a singles match, and all kinds of other stuff, including a new announcer hire. All that more next week on Between the Sheets. Or you can follow the show on their Twitter account, BT Sheets Pod. Of course, I'm Chris Zellner, K R I S Z E L O N E R. Bix is at David Bix. And, um,. Bix, we haven't uh, done this section since the return of Dark Side of the Ring. Yes. Uh, so there's been two shows as a new season started. We had the Chris Candido and Tammy Sitch show first week, and then we had Man MTA uh, last week. Um, I think we both came away from the Chris and Tammy show in that it just was not long enough. There was too much important stuff that wasn't even mentioned in that. But Madden said it was basically almost exactly right at his Except time. which for not mentioning Tully Blanchard at all, which was weird. At all, yeah, which was weird, especially considering Magna married his wife and raised his daughter. Daughter. Uh, daughter, excuse me. But yeah, I mean, it, it, I, I thoroughly enjoyed the Magnum show. I thought it was better than the Chris show. So um, I, I recommend the Madden show because you get, you do get a, a slant on that show. You get there from Madden's first wife, and which you know that's a rare interview. So uh, you get there from Tamara and uh, stuff that went on there, and you know involving the wreck, and then of course uh, why they split up later on and all that stuff. So yeah, definitely a a, a good watch I thought, but. Uh, what were your thoughts on the, on the shows? Yeah, I feel the same way. Um, I listened to one of the interviews that Evan Husney did. Might have been the Observer Radio one, where he said that if Tammy was available and they could have justified having more of a Tammy presence in the episode, they probably would have gotten the network to agree to making it a two-part, you know, two-hour episode. And... 
you know, we, you and I talked about this that night and it just, there's, there were a few things that felt just too important to the things they were talking about that did not get mentioned. And the weirdest overall is that his grandfather, who was a big reason why he became a wrestling fan and got into wrestling, Chuck Popeye Richards, you know, former WWF prelim guy, was not mentioned once. Yeah, as his grandfather. Yeah. So there was that, there was not mentioning the important part of the whole Paul Heyman credit card debt thing, that the reason they did not make any effort to recoup the money from Paul and were not creditors in the bankruptcy was that Paul wouldn't give them a release to go to WCW, despite claiming he had fired them because of their drug issues, uh, unless they signed a document saying they would not go after him for the money they had fronted, which I saw an old shoot interview with Chris where he said it was over 170 grand for ECW flights that Paul never paid back. Yeah. We'll talk about this on the uh, some of the Patreon shows. Yes, yes. We talked about that in detail on the ECW on TNN shows because it actually was covered contemporaneously in the newsletters, which I don't think you or I had realized until we did those shows. Um, so there was that. There's not talking about how part of the Shawn Michaels thing is that Tammy had a crush on him when she was a teenager and he was in the Rockers and all that. Or... You know, not talking about his Memphis run at all, which is kind of important because it was his first break. And the reason he got the break was that the bookers were trying to sleep with his girlfriend. So I feel I mean, there might have been one or two other things I'm forgetting, but it's it just it felt like for the themes they were going with, there were just too many specific things missing. But it's probably, you know, it's almost surely due to the runtime. You know, yeah, and yeah. that forty-two minutes is uh, is not a lot to deal with in a lot of these cases. I'm still amazed that the steroid trial episode came out as well as it did. Like they did not really miss anything, which is insane when you consider how dense that topic is. So it's you know they're capable of fitting stuff in when they need to, but obviously some are easier than others. Like you can't really fault them. I, the only thing that was I feel like was just weird. Was not mentioning his grandfather, and to an extent not mentioning the WCW stuff. That's the only thing where I think it's just weird that you couldn't find time for it. Yeah, because yeah, yeah, he went to WCW between ECW and going to Puerto Rico, which they mentioned that. Yes. Which weird. I well, you kind of that- had to because Puerto Rico was where he bottomed out and realized he had to get clean. I know, but still, you, 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 you do that, but you don't mention WCW. That, that was – yeah. But yeah, it, it was. I mean, it was good. You got a good feel for Chris from it. From Chris's mom and, and his, his brother. brother. Yeah, his mom was interesting. Um, oh, and we also got to learn from Chris's mom that yeah, he did die of a blood clot, like everyone thought until his brother said it was not a few years ago. Yeah. So that's a whole thing, and yeah, the Magnum episode. I mean, I don't think there's that much you can say about it. It was, you know, it's different type of story than they normally tell which was nice in the sense that despite what happened to him it's still a positive ending overall yeah so i i thought both were pretty solid though overall now what is uh the next episode my uh eddie and mike graham that's the one i'm interested in a lot that that i'm looking forward to i think either the most or among the most of the 
season. Yeah, I think that one that one's going to be uh, that's going to be a show right there. I, I'm I'm looking forward to that one and see how they do that. And they did get uh, Mike's daughter. Yeah. And it's called Breaking the Cycle because she lost her brother, her father, and her grandfather to suicide. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, so that should be quite the, quite the deal there. Um, what was I going to say? Oh, I, I am glad on the Magnum show that they did talk about the Jimmy Garvin angle. Yes. Right. As, uh, because, I mean, it gets forgotten because it happened in between Nikita and the wreck. But that angle was so fucking hot. And they're right. I mean, there's, there's no telling what that could have done if he doesn't have the wreck. Because I just, I've been watching some of that TV lately. And the promos and the crowd heat and the angles where Madness Spanks precious and this and everything. I mean, Jimmy Garvin was about to get elevated big time in that feud. So that's what I was about to say, too. Like, who knows what happens for Jimmy Garvin without the wreck? Because yeah. he was still pretty new to the territory, right? Well, yeah. I mean, he'd been, he came in in February. He did the feud with Wahoo where he won the feud. And and then that takes him into Magnum, you know? Right, and we played that great promo on a show a while back in the TBS studio where he's like, okay, you think I'm a coward? Well, I want to take on Wahoo McDaniel. Here I am. Come and get me. Yeah, and it's just... And, I mean, Garvin was doing some of the, the best work he had done since World Class... And, and, you know, building up this Magnum feud, and then kaput. I mean, it's a much more ver- nuanced version of the gorgeous Jimmy Heel character than he had played elsewhere. Yes. So, uh, yeah, definitely no telling what would happen there. But, uh, yeah, I, good stuff. So, hey, I, I am definitely looking forward to Eddie and Mike. Absolutely. That should be quite the show. Yes. I'm curious how much we get about the whole, like, secret divorce thing. <laughs> Yeah. With with Eddie and um, Mike's mom that Kevin Sullivan's talking about. Yeah. So there's that. All right. Well, that's it for halftime. Let's get back to the rest of the show. All right. Let's go back to the U.S. now and to the indie scene. And we start with the IWF. We have two shows in uh, New York, June 9th in Brentwood. We have Mike Norman and Paul Lauria over the Italian Sensation and Kid Ego. Primo Carnera III over Metal Maniac. Special Livery Jones over Johnny Handsome. Virgil over Iron Mike Sharp. Jim Powers, you look good, Jim, over Skull Von Crush. Big Vito. And the Warlord over Paul Roma by disqualification. Then we flip to Port Jefferson, New York, on the next day on June the 10th. We have Don Rock over Rocky Shore. Mike Norman, Paul Loria, and Mikey Whipwreck over the Italian Sensation, Psycho Bates, and Kid Ego. Primo Carnero III over the Blaster. Not the same Blaster from AWA. Jim Powers over Iron Mike Sharp. Johnny Handsome over Norman. Would that be Mike Shaw doing the Norman gimmick here, Bex? I would think that would be Mike Norman again, but... 
he's listed as Mike Norman or Storman Norman in the other results. So I don't know. Who knows? Paul Roma goes to double count out with Virgil. Skull Von Crusher from Metamaniac and the Warlord over Skull Von Crush in a main event. All right, Bix. Brentwood and Port Jefferson. Where would they be uh, located in the uh, New York suburban area here? I believe those are both Suffolk County towns on Long Island. Okay. Um, the fact that we have Roman Powers wrestling on this show makes me think that it's connected to Roma's wrestling school in Connecticut. If that exists yet, that is. And obviously, I mean, Paul Roma's working heel and Ro- Powers working baby, babyface. Yes. So why didn't why didn't we get a Jim Powers Paul Roma match? That I mean, that would have sold out any arena in the uh, tri-state area, wouldn't you think? I don't know about that, but uh, yes. By the way, I found, the Raptors. Out, found out recently. Uh, even though no one really talks about it much, Paul Roma's wrestling school that he runs with Mario Mancini still exists in Connecticut. I'm pretty sure a lot of wrestling schools exist that we don't know about because they're small and, and just they not have high profile. an internet presence. It's not like they don't, but you know, given how much we hear about the New England scene and the schools there, it's surprising we don't hear about it more since it's always had a pretty good reputation. Yeah, I mean, it's two guys that wrestled a long time and are training there, and it's got names. Well, Mario Messini. No, not as much as Paul Roma, but still. Been on WF television for many years, so Went I mean you would think the, that'd be somewhere. Uh, Tony Altamore school. Yeah. Tony Altamore, that's right, the Sicilians. Which was kind of like it was kind of like the unofficial WWF school when it was around, right? Because that's where all the job got. Away, yeah. From. Yeah. It was like their version of of uh, Mike Jackson. Yeah. Alright. NWA New Jersey. Dennis Corlusa ran twice over the weekend with Dan Severin beating Max Anthony. That's two X's before 150 fans on June 9th in Yardsville, New Jersey. And then Dan Severin beat Yoshio Tajiri. And what was said to be a really good match as far as Tajiri taking some legit punishment on June the 10th in Tom's River, New Jersey. Before about 600 fans. Severin be rested July 1st. A light kid, Shadrock. Who has a rest since May 13th to prepare for the uh, July 14th UFC fight? David Sarantino, working his first match in a few years, worked on the card on both nights. All right, well, let's look at the results here. Yardville on June 9th, 150, at the Bushwhackers, meeting the Inferno Kid and Gino Caruso. Oh, oh. Iron Man Tommy Cairo over Akita Chaos. David Sarantino over Ace Darling. Uh, Future members of the WCW Cruiserweight division. Johnny Gunn. Yes, that jobber Tom Brandy and Doink the Clown. Did he team with himself? Meaning Yoshio Tajiri and Dangerous Devin Storm. Which Doink do we think this is? I know it was probably not. <laughs> but I, I might be Somewhat, wrong. Because are you talking about the person later, so who's in It may be Matt Bourne. Well, uh, just a few days after this, yeah, so it may be Bourne. He was living in the Northeast in this era, wasn't he? Yeah, Pennsylvania. Yeah. So Johnny Gunn and Doink over to Jerry and Devin Storm. Wow. And then Dan Severn and Max Anthony. All right, Tom's River, June 10th. We have Doink the Cloud over Brian Rollins. Blue Meanie. The future Blue Meanie. Then we have Johnny Gunn, Gino Caruso, and David San Martino over the Kodiak Bear, Max Anthony, and Typhoon. So in other words, 
Tom Brandy, oh, Tina Caruso, oh, and David Sammartino, oh, over the Kodiak Bear, Max Anthony, and Typhoon. Yes. Wow. Oh, and by the way, the results that you have here have only one X for Max. I know. Dave has two X's in his news form. Iron Man, Tommy Cairo of Inferno Kid, Ace Darling over Devin Storm, the Bushwhackers over the Brothers of East L.A., Bobby Muniz and Angel Vera, and then Dan Severn retaining the title over Yoshiro Tajiri. I know the main event is on YouTube for people who want yes. to see it. I think I'd watch it. It's fun. You know, Tajiri throws some kicks, Severn suplexes him. It's basically what you'd expect. Well, it's young Tajiri, too. So. Yeah. That wasn't the only show in Tom's River that night. The WWWA also ran Tom's River on June the 10th, where we have some names on the other show working. The Inferno (laughs) Kid over Death Storm and your opening match. Then we have Harley Lewis over Psychotron. Rick Ratchet over Ace Darling. Supernova over The Nomad. Derek Domino and Johnny Hansen went to a double disqualification. Brittany Brown beat Brandy Alexander. Glenn Osborne over Bobby Piper. Uh-huh. You think he hung around with Dave Patera or something? Bobby Rogers. Dave, Dave Mysterio. Mysterio. Then we have <laughs> Jim, Jim the Anvil. <laughs> yes. Jim the Anvil, Neidhart, and Mark the Cannon beat Primo Cornetto third and Matt Storm. Is that Devin's brother? <laughs> cousin and then our main event brutus beefcake over rip martell by disqualification i don't know who ran triple wa but they used brutus beefcake a lot this was like the first place he wrestled after his last wwf run ended but the thing that gets me is obviously dennis i guess didn't know about this or anything because in the same city i mean and using some of the same talent you'd think that he would there would have been some type of uh situation there but it wasn't but the order of the shows was laid out it appears in a way that would let you know uh ace devin and inferno kid to work both that's in the same town so it shouldn't have been that long to go yeah i don't think tom's river is that big no but interesting though i mean you don't see this often no but you know what they're local under, I mean, they're not necessarily underneath guys, but you know what I mean. Like, it's not like it's it's not like they're making or breaking either show. But it's wrestling, Bix. You know how wrestling promoters are. You know, I mean, it's it's still that territorial vibe there. Yeah, but I mean, I, I don't think there are any stories about Dennis at least not wanting his guys to work other places, like. When the ECW stuff was going on, it was never about him not wanting his guys to work ECW. Well, th- but, but there's a difference here. It's in the same city. I know, but... That's the di- I mean, th- that's the biggest difference of all. It's in the same city, and probably the shows are running all- pretty much concurrently, I would guess. It's possible one's an afternoon show? I mean, it's possible. But it's, yeah, I mean, if I'm a promoter, I'm like, wait a minute. You know, and not well... You know, it, it, it would be something I would, you know, be uh, I would address possibly, and who and who said he didn't do it? But still, I mean, that's a little too close for comfort to <laughs> run the same city. Especially some place like know. Tom's River. Like, how big is Tom's River anyway, officially? Well, Jersey. I mean, so many other towns. 
that you could run, you know, that's the other thing too. Why you got to run my town? Because Dennis had been running Tom's River for years. Yes. So it wasn't, it, it wasn't, uh, him coming in somebody else's territory is the other way around, you know? Yeah. But, I mean, it, it has a zip code range of five zip codes. That's not tiny. No, but still. All right, let's move on as we go to the ECW. The ECW? Brett? Yes, I was doing, yes, I was Brett there for a minute. Uh, there's tremendous behind the scenes turmoil and nobody is exactly clear as to what is really happening. <laughs> I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't that be the story for the last five years of the existence of Extreme Championship Wrestling? <laughs> now, by the That's way, do we get just, any torch stuff about this or just Observer? Uh, Torch was very weak on ECW news at this time. Huh. And very weak. Very weak. Um, the story we're being told, this is the Observer, is that Paul Heyman is running the show right now, and it appears to be his company, no matter who or what HHG really is. Heyman supposed as an investor who has made an offer to buy Todd Gordon fifty percent of the company. That figures have gone back and forth in regard to negotiations, but that no deal has been completed at press time. Gordon himself was looking for investors to stay involved, but it came by the end of the week that it was less likely to happen. Gordon will probably remain doing some office work and his figurehead commissioner on television, whether he retains ownership or not. At press time, the company's checks are still from HHG, but that's supposed to be a temporary situation. Several are claiming that Todd Gordon's claim debts have been paid off to the point that the company's debt is now down to $15,000. Sounds low. All right, Bix. <laughs> HHG. Here we go. I mean, it's Paul. Yes. Um, I just Googled. Apparently, the official business records say that it was formed on April 7th. Officially. Heyman Heyman Group. I thought that was debunked, that it was Heyman Heyman, Heyman Group or Heyman Heyman and Gordon. Well, either way, it's still Heyman and Heyman. Well, Richard Heyman's the registered agent. I mean, yeah. That's, I, well, it has his law firm address, though. It doesn't... So that's probably part of it. Um, it would be nice to have Todd's book out when we're recording this segment, but I don't think it's out for another <laughs> week or two, right? Uh, yeah. I, I keep forgetting to reach out to try to get, like, a review copy or something. Yeah, when does that come out... Or is it out? Let's see. I've heard nobody talk about it. So. Oh, no, it's not until July. Okay, July 25th. Well, that's, that's obviously why. But, uh, again, it's, we, we talked about this before. You're buying the promotion from the, your money mark. I mean, that's one of the stupidest things you could do as a, you know, as somebody involved in wrestling. Yes. <laughs> But, but, okay, Dave is putting in here that Todd was also looking for investors to keep the, the buy the, a piece of the company. So that kind of makes it sound like that Todd may not have had the money to keep going. So do we think here that Paul basically saved the company by buying it from Todd? That it would have gone in financial straits if he had. I mean, that implies, I think, that Todd didn't want to use his own money anymore. That's what it sounds like to me. Okay, so I just found something interesting. 
I googled just when did or why did Paul Heyman buy out Todd Gordon, and I found a Reddit post with the Observer story about Todd's departure in '97 from being involved at all. It uses the phrasing Dave does. Heyman, who eventually bought out financial control of the company from Gordon. That wording is very interesting, considering what would happen later with ECW management group, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Because what did the court stuff say? It said financial control, or c- control of the financial side, whatever it said. It was something functionally equivalent to that. That he signed over to Eugene Baffa... Um, Eugene Tarkowski and Steve Carroll. So, is it possible he doesn't actually even own the company yet, and he's just paying everyone? And again, later, in the uh. he says, he uses the wording of, I mean, this is 97, this is over two years later, and it says, uh, there are other pieces of the puzzle that are somewhat curious and don't appear to add up. Uh, Gordon's been surprisingly quiet in the wake of his departure from the company he had founded, particularly since he wasn't a behind-the-scenes, anonymous-type money man. Although Heyman had been controlling the company finances for some time now, and Gordon was more a figurehead television personality with some behind-the-scenes duties. Again, not being referred to as owner. It's like he... It's like when somebody... When somebody buys a, it's like Fusion. You know, where Fusion was going to do a WCW, they were going to take over before they officially became the owners of the company. I guess so. It talks about how, you know, the ECW ticket office was still at Carver W. Reed until Todd was completely done in 97. But, okay, so here's the other, like, thing. I mean, I'm assuming maybe there's a Todd Shoot interview that went over this, but... Why did he want out? Why was he not wanting to spend anymore? Were things just getting out of hand? But he still wanted to be involved. But why did they keep it secret? I mean, what? Here's something because else I'm wondering. Oh, go Paul, ahead. I mean, no, it, it was. I'm. I'm. They kept the secret. Paul didn't anybody know that he was the guy that had that was behind the financial part of the company. When does that become public in the first place? Basically, when Todd's gone. So it's not till the aftermath of Todd leaving. Pretty much. That's when that's when it's public that Paul is the owner of the company. Right, because initially people were confused how Todd Gordon could be the ball. Yeah. If it was his company. Right, exactly. by all appearances, other than the existence of HHG signing people's checks, from all appearances, nothing changed. Yeah. Um, although, you know what did change? And it also... You know, with all the questions we've had about this, makes me wonder how it fits into everything. All the Feinstein dramas right after this. Mm-hmm. How does that fit into this? Well, there's other things that change, too. As far as... <laughs> you watch the television. Oh, the production values of the TV go way down at this point. They go way down, and then they, it's all about now starting to run New York. Yes, but yeah, you know, as we talked about before, again, like uh, at the beginning of '95, the production values of the TV went up dramatically. Yeah, great. They had they had real lighting at the ECW arena. They were clearly using professional cameras and editing equipment. They were doing, uh, you know, pre-tape stuff that was professional. 
Well, and also, like, more, like, remote stuff, too. Yeah. You know, location-type shoots. So something else was going on, whether it was Steve Carroll putting money in or something. There was something going on the first half of the year. Well, he has a little less since June. Well, I mean, mean, as 95 went along, they still kept doing that stuff. But it becomes a show that is very obviously edited on... Like an Amiga and some SVHS VCRs around this time. Yeah, but there's other stuff going on clearly, and we still don't know what. But obviously, I mean, it seems to me that Paul was possibly scared that Todd was going to either fold the company or go back to ODCW. You know, make it more of a local operation. And Paul wasn't going to have that. You know? I mean, it's it's past that point now. The genie's out of the bottle. You know what I'm saying? So... Yeah, at this point, we're into too big to be small, too small to be big. Exactly. And Paul's already got aspirations. Yeah. But But also, where does the World Wrestling Federation fit in all this, too? I don't know if there's anything yet... Yeah, you did have that theory, though, that Paul wanting to be in with Vince, whereas maybe Todd wouldn't want that, make absolutely as a factor. Yes. That's another thing. I mean, look, look, at, look at, I mean, we got Benoit trying out with WWF. We're about to get into Shane Douglas. We're going to get Benoit again. We're going to get into Shane Douglas in a minute. You know, it's... Not feeding him to WCW. So, there's something. There's something there with them, too, where WF is possibly involved as well. But anyway, all right, let's continue. One of the turmoil has any bearing on talent movement, and there is uncertainty among talent, to be sure, is unknown. Chris Benoit, the company's best wrestler, worked at WF television tapings during the week. Contrary to all the rumors, Benoit had not agreed to go to WWF as a press time, and a last-minute deal was booked for the June 17th East Devon Arena show. The officials at last word thought of it as a 50-50 deal, where Benoit, whether Benoit would eventually come in. For Benoit to go to WWF, it would mean he had to give up his job with New Japan, which would be a major stumbling block for him. Rick and Scott Steiner for a brief period of time were for both groups. Someone saying for eventually quitting WF because New Japan pay was so much higher for the amount of date required, dates required. But it's doubtful WF would make the same concession in Benoit's case. Benoit was training Japan, which helped him get a regular job there. At the same time, no matter how good he got, those running the company still remember him as a lo- as loyal Chris. And he's thought of as a great underneath wrestler but never considered a headliner. Oh, Really? You mean the yeah. same Chris Benoit that we think might have been very jealous that Sabu was getting a push that made it? Oh, that's what it was. It was that it said in the Observer that Benoit was going to be the murdering junior heavyweight. And then Sabu took a spot. Yes. Oof. So here, the hair stuff we didn't need, we did, because there's no talking about Sabu that we didn't even have on the fuck Sabu shows. Nope. But yeah, I was trying to remember when we were talking about it. Uh, now I'm trying to remember which, because we're recording this a little out of order. What was it? Have we, in the order of the show, have we done WWF yet? Yes, it was first. Okay. okay. Um, you know, I was trying to remember. Wait, what, what was it that made us think that Benoit orchestrated? The, there was more that 
hinted at it later. But as far as the catalyst, it was, yeah, it was that it was reported initially that he was going to be the murdering junior heavyweight, which went to Sabu. And that's the kind of push it seems like he was looking for, and that's a sticking point here. I mean, you know, I'll let you finish in a second, but all of this is moot regardless because Paul's not getting him a work visa. But yeah, good old loyal Chris. <laughs> so, all right, let me continue now. Um... He's never gotten the push there to hit both his talent and charisma and popularity have earned due to him being thought of a similar New Japan young boy. And because he's been typecast in the junior heavyweight role. Wait, 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 wait. That doesn't make any sense. Everyone there has been a New Japan young boy. Junior heavyweight typecast, yes. The, the other part makes no sense. Well, he's foreign. I don't know if that's what Dave's trying to say. Oh, you think he means compared to other foreigners? Yes. Okay. Because, yeah, I mean, he's known as one of the, basically one of their guys. Yeah. Because he trained there. Um, in the poll at the end of the year, Benoit ranked only behind uh, Dr. Death, Steve Williams, Stan Hansen, and Kim Wayne Shamrock as the most popular foreign wrestlers. Yeah, he's still built as a mid-card junior heavyweight. Benoit informed New Japan he was going to have tapings from all accounts no matter what. Benoit would work through August with New Japan. ECW was unaware of Benoit was working WF tapings until the next morning when it became the talk of the wrestling world. However, Benoit did attempt to contact Paul Heyman several times over the previous weekend. If he would have stayed with New Japan, he would almost surely stay with ECW as well. And on June 12, told Heyman he was still with them and hadn't agreed to anything of yet with the WWF. But also, Chris Benoit has not been on ECW show in, what, a month or more? When were the Florida shows? <laughs> Um, May? I'm checking now. Because, yeah, I'm curious how conspicuous is any of this going to be yet. Because the last shows he did were Florida. But... uh, Okay, May 6th. Do you really think that he wore the WF tapings without them knowing? Without telling them or without them knowing? Without them knowing. No. Or without telling them, I mean, I mean, either or. I think he worked at Havens without telling them, yes. Okay. Shane Douglas was also backstage at WF tapings last week. Douglas was scheduled to start medical school in 1996, has a regular job as a history teacher in Pittsburgh, and wrestles only on weekends now. He had to give his teaching job to go to the WF. Well, imagine how different wrestling is if Shane Douglas decides to stay in medical school. Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't know yet. Thought Douglas was a strong bet to be coming in. Although the weekend he told those in ECW he was planning on staying. There's several reports that Shane was unhappy about not only losing the ECW title to Sandman, but also when Heyman apparently changed his original plans and decided to keep the title on Sandman rather than Douglas getting it back. In addition, WCW is expected to, if they haven't already done so, make a play for Tommy Dreamer. What? Well, that would have been something. <laughs> And as well known that Terry Funk's last ECW appearance, at least for a while, will be July 1st. As Funk returned primarily to keep his IWFU with Katniss Jack alive in the magazine photos. On the other hand, Sabu has talked with both Heyman and Gordon about coming back, which would feel a major, uh, almost unreplaceable hole left if Benoit does go to WF. Heyman said be leery because of what happened before. Believe an example needs to be maintained. In addition, a AAA connection was established this past week between Heyman and Conan, who was going to originally make a surprise appearance on the June 9th ECW show in Philadelphia. 
Conan was in the United States that day, missed the show due to a family emergency. Well, no dates confirmed. Conan was supposed to work ECW starting perhaps as early as the late summer. And Heyman's interested in working through Conan and booking other AAA wrestlers, in particular Rey Mysterio Jr. and Psychosis. While those two in particular are much smaller than wrestlers U.S. fans have seen, they probably get over huge at ECW Arena. And AAA Connection would give the group access to any number of wrestlers who can plug any gap in talent left by anyone leaving. Well, we all know what happens there. I mean, uh, that connection gets made. All those guys come in, and this it was a major coup for them to have those two come in right after Dean and Eddie leave. Yes. I mean, you couldn't have picked the better. Couldn't have picked that better. Yes, and I mean, he's making these arrangements before he even knows that they're going to be gone. I know. Which is not normally, I think, how we look at it historically. Normally, no. we look at it as Ray and Sakosa's replaced Eddie and Dean. No, the groundwork was laid months ahead. The question is, who's going to pay for all this? <laughs> Outside the ECW arena, ECW's crowds aren't self-supporting given the use of named talent, many of whom are fly-ins. Some question whether even at the arena with the full houses that with all the fly-ins, the shows are truly a financial success. Point to the current situation as proof that they aren't. With the exception of a few shows used to be arena, the group has yet to draw a thousand fans paid to a show. Although Gordon and Heyman both downplayed this aspect, those in the periphery of the promotion talk about the group having lost a considerable amount of money with no turnaround in sight. Pointing to the debt is proof. All but its biggest attractors admit they probably put on the best house shows in the United States. In many aspects, had the best television show as well. As financial situation on the surface appears uncertain, more and more question if the extreme nature is the one that can be economically viable in this country. some point, the FMW is proof it can be, but even FMW's popularity in hindsight now appears more based on the charisma of one wrestler rather than based on the extreme style. And the United States doesn't have the media coverage where a small group could as easily create that kind of a celebrity drawing card. Several in the company are trying to talk Heyman into trying to use pay-per-view as a means to profitability. But Heyman's more leery of thinking the company isn't ready. While SCG, which does UFC, has expressed interest in ECW as a pay-per-view entity, Heyman believes going on without adequate major market exposure is a risk, and a first buy rate that flops would do a lot on long-term damage. Thoughts? The pay-per-view thing is so weird. Well, we did a sh- Shows on that. No, but not even in that sense. But how do I put this? I think he's right based on the available information to think it's too soon and not viable unless someone else is putting up all the money. But it's a weaker ECW, albeit with some WWF television promotion, you know, weeks and weeks before, but still, that goes on pay-per-view in 97 and with... Far from the whole country because of no viewer's choice and no cable vision, does a very respectable number. And that's not a particularly strong ECW. You know, if you wanted a better ECW product getting on pay-per-view, it would have been some version of 95 or 96. So I'd be curious to see how many more TV markets they had in spring 97. But... I feel like with the buzz they have and knowing with hindsight how they did on pay-per-view, 
I think there's a chance it could have done fine at this point. But I don't blame Paul for not thinking so at the time. No, I don't think so. I don't know. I don't think I don't I don't think I don't think this was the time for that. ECW wasn't ready for that yet. Yes, in a sense, but it, at this point you have Cactus Jack, you have Terry Funk, you have Two Cold Scorpio. Yeah, you have just, a, not, a better Shane Douglas. They're not ready. It's it's not ready. It's just not ready, Bix. Okay. Because they haven't <laughs> Were they ready two years later? More ready, way more ready than they were in 1995, because by that point in time they've been touring, they've been going to different places. Their name was out there. Their TV was in more markets. Oh yeah, absolutely, 100. No, no doubt. I mean, honestly, you know what the big change is, and this just hit me. By '97, they're starting to draw some bigger houses, like the Shane Douglas Pittsburgh houses but they're going start around that they're going different places i mean all they're doing right now is you know tooling around pennsylvania and florida tours and stuff like that that's it yeah i mean they they're not back in i mean the new york city debut i should say is not till december and they haven't been in the new york market since the one show in yonkers a year earlier well they i mean as far i mean yeah but they they did middletown and shit like that well, Middletown hasn't happened yet. No, but they do in 95. Yes. Which is New York before, market. Yeah. Before Queens. Yes. You know, um, they're not doing Pennsylvania. They're not doing Massachusetts. Um, you know, they're not venturing out, you know, into Western Pennsylvania, really. So by 97, they've done all that. So they're, they're, their cachet is a lot stronger in March 97 than it is here in June 95. All right, only show over the weekend was at Drexel University in Philadelphia for turn two fans on June 9th. The main event was supposed to be the Sandman defending the title against the winner of a two-call Scorpio-Marty Gennetti match. When the two wrestled a double pin, Todd Gordon came out and announced that because it was a draw, Sandman had to defend against both of them. Sandman then won both matches. In the public game baseball bat, Baseball bat match of the pit bulls, which they won. Rock Rock did a moonsault off the top of the bleachers onto one of the pit bulls who was lying on the table. At one point, this match was going to be changed to an unadvertised public gaming team with Conan because the pit bulls and Raven match, but Conan wasn't there. Jungle Jim Steele was backstage looking for work. <laughs> but he uh, he works the arena show and he gets choke slammed. Uh, what is it, four times or five times? Five, nine, nine, yeah, one. something like that. Uh, Shane and Ron had a really weird match. Cactus City Civic fans have seen him sh- shed the blood, and for one night, he deserved a break and would give people a scientific match. The crowd booed, and Katniss and Axel started telling him if they didn't like it to go home. When the fans began antsy, Katniss started insulting them. At one point, Katniss started leading crowds in a chance of boring over the house mic. Then Katniss said if anyone was faxing Dave Meltzer uh, news from this show, to tell him it was a five-star match. Both guys went up outside the ring using objects, but then went back to the rest holes. Eventually, both men juiced. They went out of the ring with chair shots. It appeared the storyline was that both men were going to try and wrestle the scientific match, but couldn't because violence runs in their veins. Some of the fans understood it at the end, but a lot didn't. <laughs> yeah, seeing this played a role in Mexiel turn, in a way. Well, it's probably a, t- a trial. You know, yes, but also the fans not really 
clicking with what it was either. Yeah, but again, it's probably a, you know, a possible trial or mixed part to see how this would go. Yes. In the Ravens, Stevie Richards were stomach during Katniss Jack match. The local the college wrestling coach and Beulah McGillicuddy were referees. Beulah was totally partial. So John Finnegan, a regular referee, kicked her out of refereeing. Tommy and Katniss lost. So after the match, Tommy piled Joe Beulah twice. The second one on, top, on a steel chair. The local Philadelphia CBS affiliate covered this show. Huh. Well, at least I got that. It's also interesting seeing them run in a secondary venue in Philly proper. Yeah, I know. Drexel University. Yes. And of course, this show is on the award-winning High Spots Wrestling Network. Not to be confused with High Spots TV or High Spots Now, which do not, I don't think, have it. Uh, yeah. So. But anyway. All right, uh, as we continue. No word in the G17 East Arena lineup other than Sam and defends against Katniss in a bar bar match. Public Enemy will work uh, against Axel Rotten and Mr. Partner. Luna and Beulah will wrestle. And Tommy Dreamer and Taz and Kuko Scorpio will face Raven in the, in the Pitbulls. Plus, Chris Benoit will be on the show. To get over Taz's gimmick change, he's now wearing a crew cut and wears normal tights and wrestling boots. Looking somewhat like a shorter version of Rick Steiner with a better tan. When the ring announcer in June 9th said, let's hear it for the Tasmaniac. 911 gave him a tote slam for calling him Tasmaniac. More on that in a minute. As mentioned earlier, ECW, uh, the, the gangsters are headed in the ECW, presumably a few with Public Enemy. Those also rumors of PG-13 doing some dates against Public Enemy. Well, that would have been cool at this time period. Yeah. Doesn't happen. All right, we got some clips for television. Let's start with Cactus Jack and a promo he cuts here. So uh, let's see what old Cactus has to say. Still a baby face. Yes. Couple more months. I've talked about quite a few things the past several weeks right here on ECW television. Friendship, family, pride, and world heavyweight championships. Well, this Saturday night, they don't exactly apply. Because this Saturday night, Sandman, when the ropes go down... And the barbed wire goes all around. We get to explore a very dark side of my personality. A side I'm not so proud of, but a side I can't deny. And very deep in my heart, Sandman, there lies a lust for blood that I can't deny. And there lies a lust for blood that you won't be able to run away from. Because we're not just talking man against man. We're talking man against thing. And in my life, Sandman, there's never made a thing that made me feel this sick. And this good at the same time as the wire that stands before you. In the memory of Eddie Gilbert, the fans remember they had to cut cactus jacked out. My loving wife and my side hoping our man would still be alive. And I consider that match, Sandman, the greatest night in my life. You ask me, Sandman, they say, uneasy lies the hand. And where's the crown? Well, you're damn right. 
Because we better both lie awake at night. But the difference between you and me, Sandman, is I don't need 16 beers to step into the ring. I don't need 16 beers to lower my inhibitions because I don't have a damn one to begin with. So you tell me, Sandman. You tell me how bad do you really want to remain the world champion? And how bad do you want to remain on this earth? Because I'm coming after you with the worst intentions I've ever held. And if I can capture the heavyweight championship belt in the meantime, well, that's super duper good just as well. Bang, bang! Hell oh, of a fucking promo. This is the redub version on YouTube, then. Hell of a fucking promo. But yeah, you thought these were the network versions. Chris, listen to what we got here. Yeah, well, how low, how low is the upload? Uh, Two years ago, so yeah, that's for, yeah, yeah. The redubs have been out since before then, yeah. Yeah, well, oh well. I mean, the person who uploaded it, I don't think... Normally, the aspect it. ratio correctly. But. Well, they also don't normally upload ECW stuff either. So no. that's another. But anyway. Love that ECW yeah. project. I mean, that's a whole promo by Cactus. It's Cactus Jack in 1995. So, yes. All right. So we got the new Taz. Let's go to Polly Dangerously. We're talking about the new Taz. You mean three letters, one name, and a whole new attitude? <laughs> well, let's see what he says. I'm Joey Styles. We're in Egypt Arena. Hi, brother. It's Andy Eagles. I'm here with Pauline Dangerously, my favorite of all time, my hero, my personal favorite, the Cycle Yuppie, guys of New York, blah, 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 Paul Wade the right? Thank you for the introduction, Joey. I'm here today to talk, no surprise to you, about Taz. Three letters, one man, and a dangerous new attitude. You know what, Joey? I know that you yourself cannot believe that this man had the guts, had the cojones to come out here in public and expose himself for exactly what he is, a human being, a man. I mean, think about it. Who in the world today could you compare Taz to? What accomplishment has any man out there done that is equivalent to what Taz has done? What, what act of courage could be compared to for what Taz has done? This man has risked all the momentum that his career has going for him to tell you his public the truth to let it all hang out like john wayne bobbitt at a porno convention this guy comes to you <laughs> and says i speak the truth i am tagged I'm a- why does it have to be john wayne bobbitt that could be any man who's done a porn <laughs> film well it's because it's john wayne bobbitt at that time well also that's more of a mainstream reference i, I don't know if everyone watching would get jeff striker or... yeah but john wayne bobbitt's all i mean Again, yeah, I mean, it's a guy who has dick chopped off. Yes. Uh, as became more clear in time, uh, deservingly so. But that's a different story. A living, breathing, suplex machine, and any man that stands within my path of rage will be mowed down by my very personal suplex. This is the equivalent of Mickey Mantle coming out and going, I, I need a liver. We're talking about, this is a man that comes out and like Michael Jordan says, I can't play baseball, I'm a sucky baseball player, I gotta go to a state playing basketball. This is the equivalent of Michael Jackson coming out and 
Listen, I don't like little boys. I like the king's daughter with all her money, and I want to be, oh, at least waist high, Woo! the hottest Caucasian on the R&B chart. You're talking about the gutsiest individual in sports today. Chaz, three letters, one man, and a dangerous new attitude. Thank you for correcting me, too, on the uh, catchphrase, Paul. <laughs> oh, God, Joey's face is here. I just want to punch each and every one of them. <laughs> but, uh, again, this is the Polly that goes away. The more he gets involved, his owner of the company. Yeah. It's sad, you know? Yeah. All right, so the show ends with Public Enemy in the streets and we get some foreshadowing of their future let's go to the clip come on Jake. Oh. i got myself a pretty automobile to get the bags in i there. got all the bags we rolling empty my man it's nice <laughs> you driving no you drive john no, no, i have shotgun i got no license you got no license either yeah but i get five john you only get one he has no license so no one can find out he's in his 40s <laughs> if they catch you, uh, not don't give me no hard time. Just drive, Rocco. Johnny, don't give me no hard time. Just get in there and drive, Rocco. What, Johnny? Who be tagging on us, G? Who be tagging on us, G? <laughs> yeah. Oh, Johnny, I don't feel so good, Rocco. I know TPE. We the public enemy. Explain what's going on, G. Johnny, I don't like this, but... It says TPE TOS. Terms of service? Terminate on site. Oh, okay. What's wrong? Oh, ECW music coordinator Mike Esterman on QTV. TOS. Terminate on site. Looks like we're not the only two hoodies in town no more. Oh, it's got tagged two places, yeah. Yeah, they didn't notice that side. And the camera doesn't really dwell on it either. No. Oh, or wait, or does the other one just say TPE? Uh, I don't know, but that's the, that's the clue for the gangsters. Yes. So, there's that. ECW will be starting very shortly on Channel 25 in Cincinnati at 10 p.m. on Monday nights. So, there's a TV clearance for them. Mm-hmm. Who knows how long that lasted. All right. Uh, the AP ran a story on Matt Bourne. Matt Osborne, the original Dwight Clown. Being arrested on June 13th at his home in Youngstown, Ohio, charged of assault and harassment of a, in a domestic abuse case, he was released on a $1,000 bond. Are you shocked at this, Bix? I mean, it's kind of hard to top um, yanking a teenage girl into your motel room while her mother is standing right there. But, no, I'm not shocked. <laughs> I mean, Bourne had a he had a lot of problems, and uh, his anger was uh, <laughs> sometimes could be controlled. How do you so mean? Speak. 
I mean, he would just, um, he would go off and do shit like this, as I'm about to read right now. Elwood City, Pennsylvania, Dateline. Professional wrestling's original Doink the Clowns been charged with domestic abuse. Matthew Wade Osborne, 37, who wrestled as Doink with the World Wrestling Federation for a year, was jailed on Tuesday night, which would be uh, the 13th, uh, with simple assault and harassment charges after a fight, police said. Officers went to Osborne's residence to investigate a traffic violation and found an ongoing dispute. So that's not why they were called there. Osborne lives in Elwood City, about 30 miles northwest uh, of Pittsburgh. Wait a second, so they went to just serve him, like, a a traffic warrant? Yeah. And just happened to walk in on him, beating his girlfriend? Yeah. Osborne was arraigned before District Justice J.V. Lamb of Edinburgh. Lamb said yesterday that Osborne had been in a dispute with his girlfriend. Osborne was released yesterday in $1,000 bond. Federation spokesman Steve Planamena said Osborne originated the role of televised wrestling's bad clown October 92 and was released from his contract a year later for unspecified reasons. Since then, several other wrestlers have played the role. He said, Doink appears in clown face, a green wig, red and orange blue wrestling tights. The wrestler currently touring as Doink the Clown appeared Monday near Youngstown, Ohio. Police arrested Osborne in early May on charges he vandalized a car. Osborne was charged with criminal mischief and disorderly conduct. Police later withdrew other charges of witness intimidation, terroristic threats, simple assault, and harassment, said D- District Justice Samuel Battaglia. Again, goes to that anger thing I was talking about. Well, okay, so I'm digging around. It seems like there are a few different versions of this, maybe an updated one. So this is from the June 17th uh, Allentown Morning Call. It also includes quotes from Osborne. It's not clear if this is from a police report or if the EP reached out, but it quotes him. It says the six foot one, 260 pound Osborne said his girlfriend in Elwood City is, quote, a bit younger than myself. And then he says, we got into it and I slapped her. It's an embarrassment to me. I never slapped a woman before, said Osborne. Oh, sure. <laughs> I mean, I suppose it's possible he never slapped a woman before. Well. But I, I'm guessing he yeah. has hit women before. But the thing is, and I, we covered this story. It's two weeks later that he gets sued by WBF. Over using the, uh, still using the gimmick. So it's the the arrest is the reason that yeah. they to sue him, obviously. Yes. yes. Understandably. I mean, the headline in the Philadelphia Daily News is, quote-unquote, Dwight the Clown charged with domestic abuse. Yeah. And I... I don't blame them, do you? No. Because every every article you see, it mentions Dwight the Clown. Yes. Not Matthew Osborne. It does, but... Yeah, but the headline is Dwight the Clown. Yes. So... Yeah. Um, trying to say, is there anything else in any of these? There's not really. I mean, it's, it's all the, a version of the same thing. Okay. But there you go. I mean, this Matt Bourne is, is shit. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure we're going to hear about more about that in the coming weeks when the Dark Side of the Ring episode airs. Yeah. 
All right, Smoky Mountain Wrestling highlights of their June 12 TV tapings, which include the debut of the Headbangers, Mosh and Thrasher, who most recently were the Spiders in Ozark Mountain. Cherry Gordy is a heel, if you with Boo Bradley. Brad Armstrong's a babyface to be blending in the Smoky Mountain Wrestling title contender, and Tommy Rich, who didn't appear because he was booked for Ozark Mountain in Jonesboro that night, but will be the interviews for airing over the next few weeks. Rich, Gordy, Landell, Punisher, Al Snow, and Unibomb are all members of Jim Cornette's new heel group called the Militia. With Cornette dressed up in a military outfit doing the copy of the mid-70s Lawler Army gimmick and later Eddie Gilbert's Army. The prevailing angle is that because of the stipulation for their match last Thanksgiving where Cornette and Bob Marshall and Valley will be their final conflict, that none of Cornette's men can face Bob in the ring and Bob can't face them. So Bob is bringing people in to face Cornette's men until they finally drop the step, Dave, suppose. Okay. Um, I and mean, we've talked about this a little bit before. The big problem with this, besides that it just feels like He's out of ideas. Snow and Unabom absolutely should not have been in the militia. No. With Buddy, it works out with how they set up the turn. Yeah. But I don't think you needed him in there either. Uh, you do. He's the, he's the important piece of it. Yeah. You do need him. But you get what I'm saying, though. You didn't he need to need a manager. Well, he, he needs need a, a catalyst manager. for a babyface turn, is what he needs, specifically. He doesn't need a manager, but still, I mean, still. He works, I mean, he, him being the, uh, you know, the top guy in the militia is the, an important thing. Yes, yes. But Al Snow and Unibom definitely didn't need it, because Al Snow, his character at the time, did not need, he didn't need that. It just didn't click for persona they had really it just didn't work um gordy is 1995 gordy uh, he definitely he definitely needed to be in there yes yes if you're gonna use him he needs to be in there and, and tommy rich makes sense too yeah and of course you're gonna put barry buchanan in the well he's the, he's the muscle yes yes and for people who have never seen him in Smokey, I think people might remember the leg drop he did in WWF and other places where he got the big height on it. In Smokey, he didn't do it the same way. He got height on it. But instead oh, of going high. for height, his thing was he basically did it across the diagonal length of the ring. Oh, he was he was so fucking impressive. Yes. I thought that guy was going to be a major league superstar in the business. Me too. I thought he just can't miss. And he had, for a guy doing that green wrestler, big guy, heavy bodyguard role, he had charisma. Yeah. He's a guy where he had talent. I mean, we never heard him really try. I don't know if he could have talked, but still, like, he's a guy who was just, had bad timing and probably yeah. could have been a much bigger star at a different time in different places. He's 27 years old here. So he's a young, youngish guy. You know, just, I don't know. It's crazy how Memphis didn't use him in the whole Smoky Mountain deal. Yeah. In fact, but they decided to use the Smoky Mountain Massacre, for God's sakes. <laughs> All right, but I mean, you know, these are big names coming in: Gordy, Rich, Brad Armstrong. I mean, that's some big names yeah. coming in now. Problem is, they're coming in at the wrong time. Yes, the TV title I saw by Bobby Blades with no show television seemed to be forgotten. 
Yeah, do they... Well, no, they do bring it back some, right? Because doesn't Gibson hold it at the end? Yeah, they bring it back. And, of course, this is the Beat the Champ TV title, which never had a physical belt or anything. Uh, New Jack, who's at the area, was indicted on June 12th in Morristown, Tennessee, on three counts of assault and one count of disorderly conduct for an incident match in Morristown where he got into altercation with a 14-year-old fan and two police officers. Oh, great. Their final night will be June 16th in Knoxville in the triangular matches. They've given notice and are leaving for ECW. Other killer Kyle Dilo Brown, who also works as part of their ring crew, will stay. The first hour taped to television. And I where, don't think they make that date, right? That ends up being the big sticking point. Yeah. The first hour TV, TV – well, they're at ECW Arena. That's the same night. That's right. That's yeah. Barbire Hood, Bar Hoodies and Jokes Land. Uh, first Star TV saw Hitbangers uh, debut doing the finisher. One guy powerbombed the guy. I know did a leg draw talk called the Stage Dive. House Sun interview saying 30 Day Time was running out, so they had to defend the bell. So we're putting him against Loverboy, Lee Thomas, and the Wolfman. And they easily won. Courtney introduced Gordy as part of Militia. They didn't have Gordy do anything but run the ropes. Randy Hales in an interview. Saying USWA was superior to Smoky Mountain and ran down the Smoky Mountain referee Mark Curtis. Curtis came out, but Hales jumped him until Les Thatcher pulled Hales off. Curtis then ch- chased Hales out of the building and had a comedy spot in their next match. A Smoky Mountain time match with Landell Steve Armstrong. Lee Thomas was referee because he couldn't find Mark Curtis as he was still chasing Hales. Finally, I mean, he finished was Cornette distracting Thomas, and the punish hit Armstrong with a load of gloves at the pinfall. After the match, Bob and Steve Armstrong came out with a small guy called Armstrong's Avenger. Jobber Mike Mason, Landell laughed at him and challenged him to a match for next week. You can see where that's going. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's the thing we forget. The early aggressor in the USWA Smoky Mountain feud was USWA. You know, starts with Lawler and his shots at, at Smoky Mountain. But that's not billed as a promotion thing. That's just evil Jerry <laughs> well, Lawler from Memphis. Yeah, but he's making. Fun, I mean, but he's talking about how much better West Tennessee is. Blah 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 blah. It's a it's a regional thing. He's talking about West Tennessee over East Tennessee, and then Hales is you know the USWA promoter. You know, doing doing promos for Lawler at at a random time, and then we have PG thirteen starting to come in, and this is what Hales is talking about here. So, they're the early aggressor in the whole thing, but the feud doesn't get started until our week, which we'll get into later. And even then, it falls to the wayside and smoky pretty quickly, and becomes more of a USWA thing. Yeah, that's where. Yeah, exactly. Which makes no sense. If they would have kept it going to smoking, I mean, who knows? Might have helped Smokey out a little bit. I mean, especially because it did draw in the USWA. And you're bringing that fresh talent in from Memphis, like Brian Christopher, PG-13, Doug Gilbert, you know? Yep. Second hour TV opened with Brad Ar- I mean, Bob Armstrong there with Armstrong's Avenger, who was still Mike Mason. When the match started, the Avenger was noticeably bigger. And before he took his mask off and started matching, most of the crowd knew it was Brad. Brad won a non-title match with the Russian leg sweep. They announced for Summer Blast, July 15th in Knoxville, a match with Randy Hales and Mark Curtis. Hales, who was a twig like six foot five, one sixty, claimed in his interview he was a competitive bodybuilder and a martial arts black belt. They've been doing a gimmick where Snow claims someone stole something out of his bag in a dressing room. Anyway, this one, Rock and Roll supposed to come out with a tape recorder and the tape that said they stole out of Snow's bag. They said unless they got a title shot, they played the tape. On television, uh, during our week, the show was halfway, halfway focused to this whole feud. And there's a thing at the end where Al Snow had a paid advertisement 
where him and Unabomb, where he was talking about this thing being stolen out of his bag, didn't say what it was, and that he was going to uh, get whoever stole it, blah, 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 blah. Um, they said, unless we got Tasha, they played the tape. So Unabomb came out with Bob Armstrong in a court injunction, not allowing them to play the tape, and ordered them to re- return the recorder. They did. But Armstrong ordered to attack title match on July 15th, which would be Rock and Roll's last shot at the title. No DQ, no time limit. The Rock and Roll didn't win a the title. They'd leave Smoky Mountain Wrestling. So here's the thing. They do this whole thing, and they never play the tape. Why? I mean, they never even give a, any indication over what it right was. Here, yeah. 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 So why? Why even do this? SMW, everybody? Steve Armstrong interviewed challenging the Punisher for, on July 15th for constant in his title match. Gordy came out for a squash and got a big pop. He looked better than he looked last year, but was still below par. Yes, he did look better in 1994, Terry Gordy. That's for sure. After destroying Thomas, Gordy and the Punisher kept beating on him until Boo Brother made a save, but they doubled up on him until Steve made the save. Bob Armstrong did an interview announcing the Super Bowl of Wrestling Show and all this forth in Knoxville. Saying they already had signed NBA champion Dan Severin to defend the title and that the WF Intercontinental Champion would be there defending his title against who holds the Smoky Mountain title. Didn't say the, said the champion. Didn't say who's going to be. And also announced the Smoky Mountain USWA titles would be on stake. Be a stake because Jarrett, Double J, is still the champion here. But of course, everybody knows he's going to lose to Sean. In the final hour of the taping, the Headbangers challenged the Thugs. Tracy Smothers and Dirty White Boy. Rock and Roll's interview. Claiming that they gave back the recorder. They made a, a dub of the tape and started playing it. Oh, well, here we go. I forgot they did actually play it. They made a dub of the tape and started playing it. Cornette's voice is on the tape. Cornette came out and started screaming about it, and Snow and Unibomb jumped rock and roll, so the thugs made the save. They played it, but it's just Cornette's voice, so we never actually really hear what it is. Right. I, I, you know, the loophole rang a bell that they made a copy. They never said they had to. They couldn't play the copy. They couldn't play that tape or whatever. But yeah, they, but all they play is just Cornette talking. There's nothing there of note. No. Uh, Brad Armstrong interviews anyone who went to Smoking Mountain Tiger, the shot the IC title. Think about that possible match. Shawn Michaels against Brad Armstrong in 1995. That would have been something. Mark Gerson interview coming out with a skeleton wearing a tie and saying he'd been training with a skeleton as his workout partner since the skeleton was tougher than Randy Hales. He was at Dom DiNucci's wrestling school in Pittsburgh for 10 years. They trained with Katniss Jack and Shane Douglas as a tackling dummy and took their best shots, which is true. Gordy wrestled Boo Bradley, which ended with Punisher trying to interfere, but Bradley beat him to the punch. However, Bradley and missed a splash off top. Gordy pinned him with a power bomb. After the match, they doubled up on Bradley, and Gordy ripped the head off of the teddy bear and put the stuffing in his mouth. Ugh, that sounds sanitary. Became a battle royal with Steve Armstrong, Buddy Landell, Bob Armstrong, Al Snow, and Unibom all involved until finally Steve and Bradley were thrown out, and all the heels were doing a number on Bob. Until Brad made the safe cleaning house on all the heels. The Thugs had a squash, and Randy Hills did color, saying in July in Cookville, Tennessee, that PG-13 would defend the USDA titles against the Thugs. Showing him with Snow and Unibomb against him to defend the titles against two jobbers, but the jobbers snuck out, Rock and Roll snuck in, and the short brawl, Snow threw Morton over the top row for the DQ. So there's your TV tapings for uh, that took place during our week. What are your thoughts on Smoky Mountain at this time, where they're going, direction, all that stuff? Some of the summer stuff is good. The stuff going into Super Bowl and Fire on the Mountain is probably the last really good run they have. But you can still... You see the momentum here. You see they've got Brad Armstrong. You see things are picking up some. 
But you can also tell that Cornette is so beyond burnt out. Yeah. So it's kind of a mixed bag. And the aesthetic look of the show. Yes, which I never understood. Like, why Why do even things like just the way you hang the banner get so much worse? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, just little things like that adds up. Biggest show of the weekend was June 10th in Johnson City. We got the review from The Torch. Before by 500 fans, saw Rock and Roll Express beat uh, Snow and Unabomber in a non-title match. Sterling here is that Snow and Unabomber take advantage of a 30-day rule and are defending the belts as little as possible, so all the Rock and Roll ma- matches are now non-title. Morton was wearing his net brace when he came out. Snow laughed about Morton's injury, but Andrea, Morton's girlfriend, got in the ring and removed the brace, revealing Morton's fully healed. It's a usual match, good but none special. Snow tried to use the tight spin Morton, but Morton reversed it and used tight spin Snow. Afterwards, Morton got on the mic and accused Snow and Unabomber of being afraid to defend the titles. Snow and Unibomb ran the ring, and then a prompto match broke up, but Snow and Unibomb quickly bailed out and returned to the dressing room. Three stars! Then we have a stretcher match. The Thugs, 31 Boy Trace Simmons, beat the Gangsters. Mustafa no-showed, so it was New Jack and D'Lo teaming up here. Saw a brawl, even especially when Smothers and New Jack left the ring and brawled around the arena floor. Finished saw a white boy lift New Jack up for a powerbomb. Smothers helped out by giving, uh, helped out by helping the jam New Jack to the mat. New Jack ended up being wheeled out in the gurney for a Bayface win, three and a quarter stars. Swing on title, Buddy Landell retained over Steve Armstrong. No DQ match. The only way to win was a figure four leg lock. Cornette managed Landell and keeping the new militia gimmick. He showed up wearing a general's uniform complete with helmet. A female fan in the front row really led the Cornette ended up slapping him. A security officer came over to break it up, but he refused to expel the fan from the building. This led to an argument between Cornette and the officer, which had to be broken up by other security personnel. <sighs> Cornette's on the right. He got, and the woman slapped him. You can't. Well, no matter. No, what, no he's absolutely you, right as far as the security hit, guard. Yes, yes, yes. You can't hit somebody. You can't hit somebody. No matter what, you can't hit somebody. I'm sure Cornette was talking a lot of shit, but you cannot hit somebody. You're a fan. Their talent. You can't. You can't do. You can't be the first one to, to strike. Yes. The match resumed. Cornette took advantage of no DQ stipulation by hitting Armstrong on the racket in plain view of the ref. Cornette got in the rain, but Armstrong slugged him. Cornette's helmet flew off, but Landell retreated. They clocked Armstrong in the back of the head with it. He used figure four to pin him. Star and a half. Not a good star rating for this one. Then we had a dogfight match where Boo Bradley beat Killer Kyle in the Jersey dogfight. Same gimmick as the Volunteer Slam with bags over all four posts and spiked dog collar in the third bag. And nobody saw all possibilities for finding the gimmick on the last try. Kyle used the collar on Bradley, who then bled. The end came when the referee caught Kyle using the ropes for leverage. He hit Kyle's hands off the ropes, enabling Boo to roll him up for the pin. Star on a quarter. And then opener match, D'Lo Brown. Can the opener beat Bobby Blades' handful of tights in the opener? Star on a three-quarter. So, I mean, house show, basically. You know, but Johnson City. You know, so. You know, any thoughts? I mean, it doesn't feel like it's an A-Town show, necessarily. It doesn't feel like it's much happening. Well, it's not a major show, of course. But still, I mean, for what they're doing at the time, you know, it is what it is. All right, uh, USWA. The National Base United States Wrestling Association ran their two biggest shows of the year over the weekend. From a natural situation, the shows appear to have been a disappointment, as our reports are that there are about 3,000 fans in Memphis on June 10th and 2,500 in Louisville the next night. We should get official figures by next week's issue. 
If Louisville show, which reported us to be an excellent house show, is no doubt the group's largest crowd in years at Louisville Gardens. However, the promotion was spent based on on-time record in advance, a sell of 5,500 seats. The Memphis show, Bill's Memphis Memories 2, drew less than half of the 7,700 fans of the first one. Even going in, most felt the show wouldn't draw as well because it had already been done before. It was also noted that last year they cut the cheapest ticket price down to 3 bucks in order to draw the crowd, while this year it was 15 9 and 7 the expectation was honoring Jackie Fargo, who wasn't in the first show, and until really popped the big houses through the 80s for occasional returns, the area's biggest draw during the 60s and early 70s. Then bringing back the fabulous ones, Stan and Steve, who were the key draws on top in 83 when the promotion had their best year ever, would pop the houses. In Memphis, there was almost amazement that the Fabs got virtually no pop when they were given their big entrance, although they worked hard and had reasonably good matches, and the matches themselves got heat. <sighs> Why do you think that was? I mean, the Fabs haven't been seen there since 91, that deal. I mean, why do you think that after four years, they come back in with Jackie Fargo and it doesn't do business? Maybe this time it's been too long? Or maybe it's because the promotion is what it is. Yes. I forget. Did they do anything with Fargo during the previous run? Uh, yeah, that was the reason why Steve turned, Steve turned. But they weren't because together they, with Fargo, they, right? Uh, no, because they were with Cornette, but Stan, Stan, um, was with Cornette as far as assaulting Fargo, and Steve wasn't down for that. That's right. Okay. The Highland Memphis show was a parade of legends with Corsica Joe, Gypsy Joe, Buddy Wayne, Jerry Jarrett, Frank Morrell, Tommy Marlin, Jim White, Eddie Marlin, Sarah Lee. Miss Tex got the biggest pop on the show, gave out the certificates. One of the biggest pops. No shows with Cora Cones and Don and Al Green. All, the, all three appeared next night in Louisville. So I guess some came up. They then announced a moment of silence in memory of Eddie Gilbert and inducted Eddie into the Memphis Wrestling Hall of Fame. Tommy accepted the award and was known to be crying and hugged Lance Russell. Dave Brown and Eddie Marlin. They also inducted Phil Hickerson, Joe LaDuke, and Billy Wicks to the Hall of Fame and said the big tribute for Fargo with speeches by Jerry Jarrett, Jerry Lawler, and Stan and Steve about what Fargo meant to them. In particular, Lane did a great job saying how he was just a wrestler who was going nowhere until Fargo put the gimmick together and made his wrestling career. He ain't lying. And what's funny about that is Stan and Steve had some matches teaming together in Memphis a month before they do the Fabs gimmick. It was the presentation. Yep, exactly what it was. And there were two guys who been in the territory for a while. Uh, Steve had been there about a year and a half. Stan had been there about a year. Presentation, presentation, presentation. All they did was take them off TV for a couple of weeks. They grew beards. Got the the, top, the hats and all that stuff. Got the big promo by Jackie, and they were instant made. Very simple, you know? Very, very simple. It's not hard sometimes. You know, I do it right. Especially since the Fargo promo has issues. Pally. Or, you stink. You stink, you stink. It's Jackie Fargo, though. You know, that's the thing. I mean, that's... What appealed to that fan I base? know, okay. but still, you stinky stink. Yeah. All right, the results of the show. Mr. World Class, Chip Minton from the Power Plant, and Max Muscle, yes, the same one with Diamond House Page, teamed up with The Gambler and Gordon Shores third to beat David Haskins, Super Mario, Scott Studd, 
Scott Anton and King Cobra. It's supposed to be a 10 man tag with Brian Lee on the heel team and Danny Davis on the babyface team. Lee's knee was blown out and Davis no showed. Lee wound up managing the heels should trip Mario from outside Lee into the pit. Mario, who's described as having the world's largest ankles, is probably less than five feet tall and weighs 400 pounds. Oh, yeah, he's a, he is something. Match was described as negative stars. Old Super Mario, one of Bo's favorites. <laughs> Mario's one of Handsome Jimmy's guys, too. That's why he's pretty much booked here. Yes, he's one of his students, and at this point, he's driving everywhere with him, pretty much. In a legends match, Bob Armstrong beat Gypsy Joan about two and a half minutes. Joe had his feet on the rust, but the match was started after the fans told the referee and Bob won with schoolboy. Dave was told it was so bad, it made the one who did murder up match look like a classic. It's two guys that are past their peak. But yeah, okay. Billy Jack Kane spent Brickhouse Brown 341. Not good either, but worth a star. They made the best of Memphis tag tournament with Tommy Rich and Doug Gilbert being Bill Dundee and Brian Christopher. Brian Lee managed all the heels. Dundee had Rich pinned, but Lee threw Gilbert a chain, and he had Dundee and put Rich on top. Dundee and Brian had a mod argument after the match. Two stars. Lawler and Jimmy Valiant beat Hickerson and Ledoux in 11 minutes. Hickerson looked pretty bad, but Ledoux at 49 looked to be about 310 pounds. Surprised everyone. Pretty much looking the exact same in wrestling the same as he did 10 years ago. On the other hand, Valiant looked worse than anyone else on the card. Most heat on the show, though, was when Lawler was against Ledoux, so if he remembered their legendary feud dating back to the 70s. Hickerson hit Ledoux when Lawler ducked and Lawler pinned Ledoux. After the match, Ledoux turned on hitters. Hickerson one star. The Moondogs, the ones rest from Ozark Mountain. Moondog spot and a new Moondog Rex named Nathan Bix, uh, BPG 13. My manager Brandon Bassett gave one of them the bone to use on JCI's two and a half stars. Rich and Gilby Lawler and Valiant. When Valiant was pinned after being hit with a chain, half a star. Fabs over the Moondogs. Even though Lane and Kern, 42 and 44 respectively, are both retired, they physically looked in very good condition. Kern with a short haircut looked old, but his body looked in shape when Elaine looked by and large the same. This angle dated back to the TV that morning and about also about 10 years ago. On TV, they had the angle from which they believe it was 1985, where Jimmy Hart poured a bucket of flour with the head of Lance Russell, which was Hart's last appearance in Memphis for believing for the WWF. On TV, as they aired old clips to build nostalgia, Baxter, Brandon Baxter threatened to repeat the situation with Lance Russell, but it wound up with Valiant pouring flour on Baxter's head. Let's go to that, shall we? Let's watch that clip. Let's go back and talk about how I was treated last week by you. You're the one sat out here and interrupted. From now on, from now on, I'm just going to call you geese, all right? What I've done, I've gone back and I've looked at a bunch of tapes of the USWA in this area. And what have I seen? You show no respect to anybody. I saw one incident I liked a whole lot, though. It was one involving Jimmy Hart. I wanted them to show that tape today. But as always, you probably have been greasing the palms of the producers because that tape's not shown. You're the worst announcer in the history of wrestling. And, you know, do you remember that incident that Jimmy Hart did to you? Oh, listen, I remember everything about Jimmy Hart. I've got you a little present. I've got you a little present. Yeah, I'll bet. Why don't what? we just go ahead and relive hey, that? Hey, come on. All right. Now get that flower out of here, Brandon. I'll tell you what. You won't be back in here any at all. Hey, I got a surprise for you. Hands up. Hands up. Hey, hey, you punk. You don't 
come out here and talk to Lancer Dancer. You show Lance Russell respect. Do you understand? Hey, people, hey, I'll show you My boy, I love you. Thank you. While the smoke is clearing. We got a lot more to go, including a big match between the Rock. All right. So, yes. Obviously, the TV we have is a syndicated version. And uh, that aired on the live Memphis version because it's building up to the Memphis memory. So it didn't air around the loop. So this was aired on the syndicated version and like a... uh, you know, edited form and just showing that happening. So, how many weeks is Brandon in the territory at this point? Not long. Uh, maybe a couple weeks. And he never leaves. No, but he comes and goes as far as being involved. But he never moves out of the Memphis. Area. He never moves. No, 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 no. He doesn't move. No, you're right. He doesn't move. But like, there's times where he's not involved in, with the, with wrestling. <laughs> Yeah. So, all right. So uh, in this match, back in the ring, Simon bashes by the interfere and poor flower over his head again. As the Moondogs were distracted, Rex was pinned by from behind by Lane. After the match, Bastard challenged Vanek to come out and fight right there. When Vanek came out, he was jumped by Doug Gilbert, Brian Lee, and Tommy Rich with a pipe. Vanek sold a big, and then they tarred and actually maple syrup feathered him. <laughs> After the beating, match itself only went 508, and that surprised like a heat concerning these two teams, although it was a, one different mood dog at a time, had a headline feud in 1983. Lane had wrestled, except for one Japan tour more than 18 months ago, more than two years, and looked rusty. One star. Oh, and by the way, Brandon had just turned 18 at this point. <laughs> yes, yes, very young. Faz beat Rich and Gilbert winning the tournament in about 20 minutes. Faz were taking a beating when Fargo came out from the back. As Richard Gilbert were distracted by the by Fargo, the fastest simultaneous run ups from behind to win the tournament two stars. So there you go. That's Memphis Memories too. Now Louisville, you know this is the first time they had that because they didn't have one of those the year before. So this was a tribute that was uh, this show built around a tribute to Christine Jarrett, the longtime promoter in Louisville. They honor pretty much the same former wrestlers beside Billy Wicks, who wasn't as big a star in Louisville as they were in different circuits in the fifties as night for Memphis. Our opening match was Gordon Shores third pinning Super Mario in two minutes on a clothesline in a terrible match. Debbie Combs with no, no contest Miss Texas when a nearly balled uptown Karen interfered. Buddy Landell retained a smoking mountain title pinning Trace Smothers in an average match. Billy Jack Haynes, who got great heel, he beat Rick Gus Brown. And anything goes. Moondongs, Billy Lee, and Brian Chris would be Jimmy Harris, Max Muscle, Mr. World Class, and the Gambler. That's a fucking match. And the best match on the show, PG-13 retained USA Bay Tag Titles beating the Rock and Roll Express. Rock and Rolls play total heel and are great, using Andrea, Ricky Morton's girlfriend or wife, as their manager. After the match, R and Andrea attacked PG-13, spray painted both of them yellow. Four stars. This is like the, basically the catalyst for everything going on the Memphis side of things with the Swinky Mountain uh, USWA feud. So uh, let's watch this, shall we? Yes, and by the way, the whole show is on YouTube because it was released on uh, video as part of the USWA Heat series. And we got Corey Macklin doing announcing and post-production. Not in the building. He 
They've got him hooked. One, two, three. He had a three count. Gibson goes over. Grabs Whoopie D. That was a horrible DDT. DDT's Whoopie. What a great, great bout. Action continues. JC comes from behind. Now it's Mortal with a hubcap. He's got him. One, two, three, 16, 33, Lance. PG-13 retains the USWA Tag Team titles in 16 minutes, 33 seconds. PG-13 retains the USWA JC Ice. What is she doing, Lance? Rock and roll came up from behind and nailed him as PG-13 went rolling after. Are you sure this is in post? Yeah, it sounded to me like it was in post. I think maybe they're just doing more professional commentary than they've been doing on the... There's the way the audio sounds like it's not recorded in the building. I mean, Lance does. <sighs> Corey doesn't. And by the way, the you can see the whole lower part of the building is full. Yeah. They have it lit up, but I, it, you can't really see the upper level well from the camera angles. So. No, no. Andrea, who had slapped J.C. Ice twice, and then Rock and Roll came up behind him, nailed him, threw J.C. out, double drop kick, there goes Wolfie out on the floor. The winners of the match, the winners of the match are PG-13. of J.C. Ice. Make no mistake about it, the winners were PG-13, although they don't look much like it right at this moment.
There you go. Oh, and uh, <laughs> we'll talk about that in this next deal here. Um, but thoughts on that? Uh, you know, Rock and Roll Express being heels now and being, you know, involved in this feud that's about to blow the territory up. Well, they're not long for this world. <laughs> Thanks in part due to Andrea. Well, they see they still kind of team together in Memphis a little during all that, but yeah, very little. I I think like the after the incident with Smothers, um, they may team together maybe once again in Memphis and Roberts on his own with the Smoky Mountain guys. So this is followed up by the Fabs, managed by Jim Cornette, working as babyfaces, beating Tommy Rich and Doug Gilbert, managed by Ronnie P. Gossett. Match got good heat from Rich and Gilbert. And uh, Cornette is in uh, his uh, <laughs> Barnum and Bailey uh, gold and black like uh, ringmaster <laughs> outfit here. His WrestleMania 10 gear. Yeah, and meanwhile, Ronnie P. Gossett looks like Ronnie P. Gossett. <laughs> so there's that. Uh, Lollicut Unified Tata being Joe LaDuke by DQ and LaDuke attack the referee. This wasn't good. And the finale was the elimination of everyone for themselves match with Lawler, Dundee, Valiant, Christopher LaDuke, Hickerson, Landale, Gilbert, Rich, and Armstrong. It came down to Brian Christopher and Tommy Rich with Christopher winning. After match, Christopher was presented a trophy, which naturally was destroyed by Billy Jack Haynes, who left Brian Lane to start up a new feud. <laughs> which happens and Brian gets injured during the feud. So he's had, has it go, come out for a minute, but, uh, yeah, Billy Jack's great in Memphis here as a heel. Yes. Very believable. <laughs> it's weird right, how he has this yeah. one last run and then nothing though. I know. Right. We do get official figures from the shows. June 10th did 3850. And $24,500 gate. Louisville did close to $25,000 with slightly more than 3,500 fans. So both figures we had last week were slightly low. In either case, promotion was disappointing with both houses, particularly Louisville, where they expected to sell out. Memphis, in one sense, wasn't that bad because even though they did double the number of fans for Old Timers Night last year, when it comes to the actual gate, the client only from 30000 because they had $3 bottom last year to $7 this year. And the TV show the weekend was filled all close to build up the show. All right, yes. What were they averaging in Louisville? Um, so like 2,000? Yeah. Yeah. Which said how bad Memphis was when Louisville was considered one of the best towns in the territory. I was the best town in the territory. Yeah. Deep South Wrestling. John Horton, not Craig Johnson, Mid-South Wrestling in Nashville, Mississippi, as opposed to the Deep South group, run by Gene Petit, Gene Lewis, who and Jim Crockett involved, is on hiatus until midsummer and will go back and use Pro Wrestling International as its name. Speaking of Deep South, Terry Taylor, who's the booker for the group, has quit, and they now have a booking committee with Gene Lewis, Jim Crockett, Dick Murdoch, and Bill Eady. Sure. <laughs> you know what's also interesting about this? Terry Taylor was booking. Uh, remember who got his first break in Deep South? Disco Inferno. Yes. Interesting. Yep. And to close out, on June the 10th, at the uh, incredibly strange wrestling show in San Francisco, we had the debut of The Abortionist. 
He used a coat hanger as a gimmick on the show put together by Johnny Legend. Seriously, J.R. Benson wrestled his first match on that show. <laughs> How do you think Incredibly Strange Wrestling would have uh, been in a uh, social media world, Bix? I can't tell if it would have been taken better or worse. <laughs> oh, the discourse would have been terrible. No matter what. Yeah. Now, is Cletus the fetus part of the act yet? I mean, it just says the abortionist, because that's all it says. The debut of the abortionist. So we don't have the pro-life, pro-choice connection yet. No. No. Curious who else was on the show. Did we have uh, LeFemme? No results. No results. Lucky Pierre. <laughs> oh, Lucky Pierre. Let's see, does ab- the abortionist have a cage match profile? Probably not. Uh, no. <laughs> oh, God. Okay, well, we do have results, though, but that with him listed, but... The first the first hit, for some reason, is Paul Warndorf versus Magnificent Morocco, and the second hit, and I'm sure he'll love this, is George South. <laughs> Why? Who knows? Yeah, Cage Match does have some results from ship, September. September. Um, September 15th at the, at the Trocadero in San Francisco, not to be confused with the Trocadero in Philadelphia that we talked about last week. Hmm. Um... I'm definitely not going to mention one of the people on this show because I don't want to get into that drama. Uh, oh, Cletus the Vetus went to an, a double DQ with the abortionist. Okay. Uh, amazing Kaltiki defeated the Aztec mummy. Gee, I wonder whose idea that was. <laughs> uh, Harley racist and Vandal Drummond, <laughs> Kurt Brown, defeated Anarchy and Chimera to win the tag titles. After they had just won the tag team titles, beating El Hijo de Manny, Jesus, Juna, Julio, Ernesto, Ramon, Chico, Verde, Chili, Cone, <laughs> Carne, Perez, and El Hijo del Red Rum, Ron. Uh, oh, oh, of course, my favorite, Yum Ripper, defeated Ku Klux Klan. I guess technically Yum Ripper is really how you should spell it. Uh, Carl Killingfield's LaFong defeated Chef Boyard Yee. <laughs> Anarchy and Ringo Ricardo defeat. Oh, the pro life, pro choice connection. Cletus the Vetus and the Abortionist. And of course, in the, oh my god, J.R. Benson defeated the Rapist. <laughs> wow. In the main event. I forgot about him. There's been a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of guys that was in wrestling that could have uh, been in that gimmick. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. We should probably leave it at that. But anyway, there you go. What a what a wild promotion that was. ISW. And it splits into two before long as well. Because it splits into the LA and uh, San Francisco factions. Well, who was the CM Punk of that, uh, of, of that split, I wonder? What are we comparing this to? The LWF? <laughs> I'm just saying. I mean, there's a split. Now, AEW's going to be splitting off pretty soon. For oh, okay. I thought, I thought you were trying to figure out who the Mike Brooks in this scenario would be. Oh, so who's, who's the CM Punk in this? Ooh. Cletus the Fetus? Uh, who knows? I mean, I'm sure the abortionist would have approved of some of Punk's shirts, so. 
Carly racist. <laughs> well, I mean, you know what Punk says? Whenever he tries to figure out what to do in a situation, he always asks what Harley racist would do. <laughs> All right, let's close that with everyone's favorite world championship wrestling. Any stunning moves stemming from a meeting between Eric Bischoff and Ted Turner on June the 5th. WCW will be adding a new television show every Monday night, going head-to-head with Monday Night Raw on TNT starting August the 7th. The show has yet a name will air probably live in a similar pattern to Raw with a live show every third week and tapes from that taping in between. The shows are supposed to originate from major arenas, supposed to contain main event caliber matches. Bischoff will host a show, which will go head-to-head against Raw, the top-rated national wrestling show in the country and the most United States. Because TNT doesn't send out a separate West Coast feed like USA Network, the show's original airing will not go head-to-head on the West Coast. However, the show will be replayed at midnight Eastern that night, which means on the West Coast, the second show will go head-up with Raw. Raw in USA has been drawing its best race since the inception of the show over the past quarter, including setting two recent records. The idea of the show stemmed from Bischoff and Turner's meeting and was released to the WCW front office on June the 8th at an employee meeting held, headed by Dr. Harvey Schiller. Reports we received is that obviously the time slot's no coincidence and stemmed from Turner being personally miffed by the letters Vince McMahon was sending him earlier this year, urging him to fold the company, claiming the wrestling company was an embarrassment to Ted Turner's name. Bischoff, his ascension to the WCW hierarchy, has always used the excuse for Monday Night Raw rings being WCW Saturday Night for Raw being on in prime time, while Saturday Night's on during a time period where there's less television viewership. Take heed of that. I mean, collision. that's not an excuse, though. That's a legitimate <laughs> difference. That logic sounds good on the surface, particularly when talking among television people, but it's faulty upon examination. WF had primetime wrestling in the Raw time slot dating back to the mid-80s and frequently during that period WCW Saturday show was doing better ratings on cable. During the heyday of Georgia Championship Wrestling in 1981, its ratings doubled the current ratings of Raw. Well, in many ways, due to the change in makeup of cable television over the past 14 years, that isn't a fair comparison. Yeah, it's a higher rating. It's not a bigger audience. And also, again, primetime wrestling was not a first-run show. No. Well, sometimes they have first-run matches, but... But it was largely not like, yeah you know what I mean yeah I know even when Raw first started consistently was the highest rated wrestling show on cable the gap wasn't like it is now where Raw's television audience at times has actually doubled that of WCW's must watch weekly show Bischoff apparently made that excuse for Raw's ratings being so much higher to Turner who responded by giving Bischoff the show, a show in the same time slot while the show amounts to the start of another avenue of a wrestling war and also, if WCW can't draw on that time slot, maybe Bischoff giving himself enough rope to hang himself. Now, Schiller did almost a 180-degree about face during the meeting from his introduction to the wrestling company. When Schiller was first named as president of WCW replacing Bill Shaw, he said that companies that spend time worrying about their competition aren't spending enough time worrying about their own product. That was a counter to Bischoff, whom nearly everyone around him claims is obsessed with the idea of running Vince McMahon out of business. At the meeting, Schiller supposedly talked about how important it is to put the World Wrestling Federation down and out, and other company officials afterwards were saying this move amounts to the declaration of an all-out war. There have already been reports floating around that the new show be titled Head to Head. But Dave's told the decision on the title of the new show won't be made until later this week. WCW is glad to the champion scheduled on TBS on August the 6th, the day before the debut of their new show from Daytona Beach. 
WCW attempted to cancel the Clash and made the debut with a new show with the planned Clash lineup to April 7th, August 7th, with the show originally from Sarasota, Florida. They did Tony Beach shows the final Clash special on the books. TBS still weren't run the Clash in August. Since the Clash special the previous August, the first Hogan Flair TV match set the all-time TBS wrestling viewership record and clashes during that time period when networks are showing reruns and traditionally drawing strong numbers. WCW has already canceled two of the three remaining scheduled Clash shows for 1995 when the company had a pay-per-view date, leaving this the only Clash left on the books. So, hmm. So do we think that the decision that ended up being where Nitro, the future Nitro, does it start till September is because of the Clash? Not being able to get moved? Maybe. Trying to remember if that's in the Nitro book at all. Well, let me continue. The pressure in the situation is on WCW, not WF. They want to put on hot shows from the start in order to gain audiences. WF has a built-in audience. In addition, because so much has been built on Hogan, there may be pressure into a situation where Hogan may have to be used regularly on the shows, particularly if ratings don't get off to a strong start. The best thing to keep Hogan is some specials for him to be underexposed. We've already seen Hogan's effect on ratings only noticeable in the special situation, such as the first match with Flair, but it's not consistent for simply putting him on television every week and that WWE's ratings, since Hogan joined the company, are no higher on a weekly basis than they were before. Even with a Hogan interview on almost every show and occasional matches that don't seem to move the numbers. If WCW does start to gather some momentum, the result will be WF being forced to heat up its Monday night shows. In addition, if you used to this battle, both groups had the uh the buck Monday Night Football, which tradition does a number on WF Monday Night ratings, and with another wrestling show on the slide, will split the wrestling already fragmented wrestling audience. Even more. Either way, because both groups probably be feeling some heat, the competition in the short run will be great for wrestling fans this fall. The long run's another story. If WCW, which isn't planning on dropping any of its three current TBS shows while adding a TNT show, the overexposure of both the product and of Hogan, who is the product, won't help pay-per-view, which is a major revenue stream for both companies. Those numbers probably already declined from the addition of some pay-per-view shows, declining even more without up to the major red ink. From a company that needs to do in the point eight five range for every preview show that Hogan appears on. If WF rises to debate and starts pushing Raw even harder, the hype for Raw could get in the way of the hype of the pay-per-views. Some say that's already happened since the increase in Raw ratings hasn't translated the company making more money. And in fact, revenue coming in for house shows previews are declining. It's preview shows today that make the companies the real money. Television ad rates bring in money, but not on the level of pay-per-view revenue, so television primary function still needs to be to hook viewers into selling the pay-per-views. If the former works without the latter, the television, no, no matter how high the ratings are, isn't going to make enough to make the companies profitable. That changed. Well, it's because it's because of this. How do you mean? You know? It's because of Nitro. Well, Nitro makes TV, the TV more appealing as the primary product, yes. So I'm saying because Nitro goes against what Raw was because, I mean, we read the Raw review earlier. What, they have like one match, main event style match and squashes and shit? Nitro comes in there and they have, I would say every match is main event caliber match, but they have competitive matches. You don't have squash matches on Nitro. Mm -hmm. And And they start out with very hot shows, you know, hot angles, stuff like that going on. So... Head to head. Yeah. Boy, that was a good decision on their part not to go with that name. 
Ah, they could have called it Collision. <laughs> yeah, there's some interesting parallels here, too, between, you know, what's going on with AEW now and this. Right. Some, not all, because, I mean, AEW is doing a split roster deal with that show, and they're not running pay-per-views every month, which basically WCW is doing this time. So there's that, but I mean, there's some comparisons to be made between the two, but I mean, if WCW was ever going to, you know, be on that level, they had to have this Monday night show. Yes. Just had to happen. Now it didn't have to be Monday night to make the effort, but the head to head ended up actually working. The the key was weeknight prime time. Like when, when, Ted has Eric in his office and he asks, like, what do they have that we don't, that they're beating us in the ratings and doing so much better? And the first thing Eric can think of is is they're on primetime on weeknight. We're on weekend evening, you know, afternoon in some places. And then Ted is like, okay, so we'll do that. Um, I love the part of the story. And this seems like something where Bischoff is telling the truth that, like, he asked for the meeting with Ted because he had gotten an offer to put WCW on Star TV in Asia. The problem being it was a Rupert Murdoch network and he knew he couldn't make that deal without Ted Turner's permission because of their weird billionaire grudge. That, you know, being a weird billionaire grudge, of course, stemmed from something with a yacht race years earlier. I'm not making that part up. Um... Now, do you remember the thing that was revealed in Guy Evans' Nitro book, though, that was not known previously? Uh, refresh me. Ted had the idea before that meeting. Yeah. So, we go to the book. We have received an offer for WC... As a cutoff sentence, the cumulative uh, history of WCTBS wrestling set the stage for... I forget who Booth is. Booth's announcement. Barely finishing delivering the news before Scott Sasa leapt to his feet, high-fiving Terry McGurk in a display of pure elation. Sasa enjoyed a particularly close rapport with Ted, but he seemed to be acting on behalf of everyone. This is it, the group agreed with their eyes. We can finally be done with wrestling. A communal sense of relief filled the room, tempered just slightly by a cautious optimism. When push came to shove, their billionaire boss would have the final say, and then, of course, Ted's pissed because... They're entertaining some offer they got to sell WCW. But then, of course, it was time to start taking WCW seriously, he decided. USA Network, with, you know, blah, 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 background info about Raw. We own a wrestling company, he said on occasion. We should be getting these numbers in prime time. Wrestling should be our thing. Ted leaned forward as the Sasson McGurk high five reverberated around him. You've now got wrestling, he told Sasson matter-of-factly. And then they explained it's TNT instead of TBS, with TNT being the more upscale, I, I guess, upmarket branded, I guess would be the way to put it, network. And he's, well, now you've got wrestling on TNT in primetime. And this is, I think, late May, so days before the Bischoff meeting. Scott Sasson, who would go on to become the boss at NBC <laughs> to bring that back full circle. Yes. Maybe. He was to replace Littlefield, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, so he was not director of program services. No, he became he became what Littlefield was. But um, yeah, I mean, it was something that Ted 
Ted had percolating. And, I mean, and that's because of Vince, probably, in those letters. <laughs> Vince doing his silly shit. Tracking under Ted's skin. Yeah, I wish we had those letters. Yeah. Folger ah, Company. You gotta shut down WCW. It's a disgrace to the good name of Ted <laughs> Turner. <laughs> yeah. All right, let's go to the torch now. And talk about right, this people motherfucker. <laughs> and talking to various people in the industry over the last few days regarding WCW's decision to go head to head with WF, there's a sense of anticipation and excitement. There's also a sense that many wonder why Eric Bischoff so badly wants to beat Vince McMahon. Some WCW people say that Bischoff doesn't just want to succeed. He wants to squash or at least show up Vince. There's no direct history between the two of them. Bischoff's never worked on events. He's never been in a power position before his current job. Well, he hmm. did try out for Vince. Yes, he did. As an announcer, he tried to sell that broom. Um, yeah. I'm just struck by how we have the 2023 Wade Keller uh, format here. And talking with various people in the industry over the last few days regarding dot dot dot. And then, like, <laughs> because, you know, these days, Wade. It's so weird. It's like, clearly, it's like, I'm getting older. I don't have it in me to do all the reporting and stuff constantly. I feel like is it where he's coming from. But it's, it's not like he doesn't have sources and isn't talking to people. He's still talking to people, but it's like he parcels stuff out in the context of commentary and analysis. <clears throat> yeah. At the last Nappy convention, Bischoff was telling those people that WCW is going to dominate WF in 1996. That confidence came mostly from the signing of Hulk Hogan, but also of a sense that WCW's house was beginning to reach a certain level of organization. Bischoff has firmly established he wants to beat Vince. The skeptical decision to increase the hours of wrestling on cable and go head to with Raw brings up all the negatives that were proposed in this week's cover story. I also say that not only are there negatives, but a few positives. Unless the motivation is to make WCW more money, the only motivation could be competition. But in this era, rest promoters with money behind them should be trying to expand the revenue pie, not take away from others. There's no doubt the money matchup will lead to a better TV product by both promotions, although there isn't a sense that if it's wrestling on their laurels either. This could increase revenue pie. But otherwise, all the head-on matchup series is to prove is who can draw better ratings than the other one. Seriously, to test, but not necessary. Why not show a Friday or Wednesday? Why Monday? Especially when you'll be head-to-head with Monday Night Football one-third of the year. Well, that's because you're going against, against Vince. That's why. This will be WCW's chance so they can match up favorably head-to-head with the most successful element in today's WF. From a fan's perspective, this will only be seen as positive news in the short run as it will cause both promotions to bring their products up a notch. In the long run, it could overexpose wrestling to the point that buy rates drop even more. Eventually, one of the two promotions may flinch and change time slots after some weeks and months on the air. If WCW doesn't beat Ross, it's a lot about Hogan's current drawing power. Although with the staggered time slots TNT, there's already a built-in excuse for failure. WCW has yet to show it can create show will produce as compelling as Raw often is. Now they have their chance. Yeah. And then they, you know, they start beating them, you know, fairly early on a regular basis. Yep. So. We've talked about this before, done in a while. The Nitros, they're not perfect, but those early shows, it's a 180 from how WCW had been presenting itself up until that point that year. Yes, absolutely. Like, And they, they were shows that you felt you had to watch live. Yes. But you get the skepticism at this time. 
based on how WCW's been going. But yeah. Now, a month or two down the line, when we start hearing what Kevin Sullivan's plans are and who he wants to sign, because he knows he needs the wrestling quality on the show to go up from where it's been in WCW lately, then all of a sudden it's like, okay, we've got something here. Yeah. But this is the, uh, I mean, this is the beginning of, of this of this going to plan, and uh, still a ways away, obviously. But uh, yeah, I mean, you had a good three months to get ready for it. Yes. So there's that. All right, since both Sting, U.S. title, and Renegade WCW TV title came out with their not as one title belts at center stage, the taping on June 7th, that pretty well gave away title changes on the June 18th Grand American Bash preview show from Dayton, Ohio. As a press time, approximately 3,000 tickets have been sold for the show in the 6,000-seat Hara Arena. Hmm. There are some changes to the original lineup. Dave Sullivan, Diamond Dallas Page, match has been changed to an arm wrestling match, with Page put up a date with Diamond Dahl, and Dave putting up uh, his pet rabbit, Ralph. Well, they sure given that rabbit time to get over, as a result of an incredibly lame television angle over the weekend. Page and Sullivan's wrestling match, no doubt stemming from arm wrestling angle, was moved to the next pay-per-view. Duggan vs. Kamala, managed by Kevin Sullivan, his new name Taskmaster, was also moved to the next pay-per-view. Marcus Bagwell, Craig Pittman, matched also in jeopardy as Bagwell has been put on crutches past week. Nobody seems to know whether or not he'll be ready to wrestle. Last word of press thought was that he would, he would, but if not, Jim Duggan would be the replacement. Supposing one of Bagwell's calf implants. These aren't uncommon in bodybuilders because calf muscles don't grow in comparison to other muscles with weight training. And for those interested in competition, weak calves throw off symmetry. His calf, his, uh, calf implants linked, and he had a painful lower leg infection. From you stayed before live audience were in after the preview, it appeared Sting will beat Ming, but not cleanly. Lean to a rematch in this preview. In addition, a match Road Warrior Honk and Buckhouse Bucks been added to the show. Didn't it turn out that his body rejected the calf implants? Yeah, that's something, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I I know we need to be careful with terms like body dysmorphia because it is a mental illness diagnosis, but like what else do you call a pro wrestler who wears wrestling boots and long tights getting calf implants? Yeah. Yeah. Jesus. Like, I mean, the story was always that he was jealous of Sting's amazing calves. And I'm not making that up. That's the thing Meltzer said. And decided to get calf implants, and it did not go well. No. Dangerous. Yeah. Now, as far as the pay-per-view, I think it ends up, if not selling out, being a fairly successful show and getting close to a sellout, right? In the end. One of the yeah. uh, earlier Zane Bresloff achievements of note, I guess. Um, Bagwell does miss the pay-per-view. I don't think... Okay, wait, Duggan Kamala at Bash at the Beach I think happens, but I don't think DDP Dave at Bash at the Beach happens. No. Do they even have any kind of blow-off? They did the date angle. But other than that? Pretty much about it. Okay. Pretty much, yeah. It's WCW. I mean, they do the arm wrestling match at the Bash. Oh, they did so have they... a match at Bash at the Beach. It went so uh, wrestle... less than four and a half minutes. Well, I totally forgot about that, so there you go. With DDP going over. Yeah. And Doug and Kamala to place at Bash the Beach, too. 
It was the match before. Yeah. Guessing it was not at the level of their matches a decade earlier. Oh, no, no, no. On the live WCW main event, which two squash matches were scheduled, but plus Pittman and Duggan, the show will include a contract signed announcement with Nick, Nick Botwinkle with the Hogan Invader cage match in Los Angeles, which Dave will turn, believe turns into Angle, which would be a last minute tease to get pay-per-view buys. Rock and Roll Express was originally scheduled to come in and face Harlem Heat on the main event and put him over. But the size fell apart because Rock and Roll didn't want to be using a jobber capacity on television. Also wanted more than 750 bucks a piece offered by WCW for the shot. And this ends up being the Fantastics? Yeah. Kind of a shame yeah. they didn't bring them in regularly. Because they had some very fun matches during their little return runs here in 94 and 95. Yeah. All right, Bash of the Beach right now. Looks like Hogan Vader, Flair Savage, Sting Ming, Nasty's Blue Bloods, Harlem Heat, Renegade, Orndorff, Duncan Kamala, and Paige Sullivan, which I think all those matches actually take place. Yes. Then the Flair Savage match reported the Baywatch TV show tie-in with several actors from the show, including David Hasselhoff, scheduled to appear. Dave's not certain how this is going to take place, but the working idea is to have the Baywatch babes and bikinis and lumberjacks be called a lifeguard match. Parts of the wrestling show will also be taped for the Baywatch TV show since they're doing an episode where Hogan, Sting, Savage, and Flair are appearing to themselves, and Hogan, Sting, and Savage playing the roles of doing Make-A-Wish volunteer work. I think what they end up doing is they mix footage of the actual match with close-ups shot separately of people. But we don't get David Hasselhoff, sadly. He's not involved. Well, he's not the pay-per-view, no. And none of the main, none of the main Baywatch women involved either. No, the lifeguards as lumberjacks, it's just wrestlers. They're just calling it a lifeguard match. I know, but none of the Baywatch, you know, main characters are even involved, period. No, I mean, none of them are at Bash of the Beach doing anything, no. Yeah. But that was a good time for WCW to have, you know, with Baywatch. Yeah. At the time. Terry Taylor was added to the booking committee. It really drew heat from the Hogan side because the belief is Taylor is a Flair ally. Well, he's the only wrestler who wishes he was trained by Ric Flair. <laughs> Have you ever seen... Do you think he wishes he was Lauren Bobert's father? <laughs> Probably. Have you ever seen the Terry Taylor-Stan Lane singles match from 1990 WCW television? Not in a long time. Yes, folks, there was a Terry Taylor Stan Lane singles match in the battle of uh, Ric, Flair, Ric Flair's love. <laughs> was he still Booker at this point? Or? Oh, no, 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 because he stopped booking before. Oh, it's Taylor only, yeah. yeah. This is right before Lane leaves. So, this is the Bix Dream match special did, right did there. Did Paul Lee do jobs on that taping at all? <laughs> That is the Bix Dream Match Special. Terry Taylor and Stan Lane. Was he sitting in a corner during that match getting coupled <laughs> in by Rick's favorites? <laughs> the younger brother of Ron Reese, whose first name is either Jay or Dave. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. <laughs> He's either Jay or Dave. <laughs> well, He's six foot eight. Is at the WCW training school. The two are now being groomed to be a giant tag team. 
According to a local coach, both from San Jose, even though Ron, legit 7-2, was a better basketball player, the younger brother's a better all-run athlete of the two, and our service was seen to have more potential in wrestling. Well, what's his name? <laughs> Jay, Dave, Jim. Daryl. Bob. Bob. <laughs> Jay or Dave. <laughs> it's one of, just one or the other. Just one or the other. I don't know. It reminds me of that time someone uh, called Dominic Valenti's hotline and uh, asked him if uh, Ahmed Johnson played in the NFL, and Dominic's answer was, I don't know, but if he did, it was for the Dallas Cowboys. <laughs> As of right now, there's no certainty one way or the other concerning Vader's deal with UWFI. Thanks, Jay. <laughs> How long after that June 17th, 10 for center stage, including Nasty Boys keeping the Tattoos beating the Blue Bloods by DQ, when Harlem Heat and Sherry ran in for the DQ, which ended up uh, with a three team brawl set up a triangle match. Flair beat Alex Wright in a three star match, which aired on TV on June 10th. Flair won using the trunks. Savage tried to run in there in the match, but was held back and ended up running after the match. Flair did a very good job here, and Wright is showing improvement. Robert Hawkestein beat Harlem Heat. Uh, Steve Ray wore a t shirt to hide the bruises from his recent motorcycle wreck. Steamp and Booker T with a splash off top rope. Match is very clumsy. DDP and Johnny B. Bad went to double count out. Bad was originally supposed to do the job, but wasn't happy about it at all, so they changed it. They had a good match after the bout page, and Max Muscle left him laying. Only the non squash was really what squashed Savage over Bunkhouse Buck. And on TV, they did a similar Kevin Sullivan was running through caves before finding a cobweb faced Curtis Ikea, who told him he had to destroy Hulkamania. Someone's pretty funny in this segment saying nobody could beat Hogan. Well, wait a minute. Let me see if this is online. Yeah, I was going to say, how do we not have it queued up from you here? All right, let's see. Because I totally missed it. Uh, I'm searching YouTube for the words first Dungeon of Doom segment. Uh, Every Dungeon of Doom. So what, what date Saturday night would this be? Uh, June the 10th? Yeah, 10th. It would be the 10th. I'm seeing a bunch of the others. I'm not seeing... This has to be online somewhere, though. Right? It's probably somewhere, but it's probably not on something that we would normally see. It's the first Dungeon of Doom segment. How is that not online come on i mean it, you'd be surprised at some of the stuff that's not online i know but that you would think would be online sullivan my son but i'm um, right now oh wait here um, we go i found something someone is this a playlist or something Dungeon of Doom versus Hulkamania? No, but this looks like it's from later. Hogan confronts Sullivan in the Dungeon of Doom. This is frustrating that this is not online. Maybe you did look and you forgot. Uh, yeah. I'm, uh, it's, it's refreshing me now. Okay, WWE.com I found June 17th. Well, that's not the same thing. Just frustrating. Very, very frustrating. I guess we'll give up then. I'm not seeing. Well, maybe it's on Daily Motion. I mean, I'm doing Google Video, which usually is better at searching Daily Motion than searching Daily Motion. I'm sure yeah. there's wonderful audio for everybody. 
the June third ninety five uh, episode is on uh, is on YouTube, but not show? the yeah the whole show on June tenth. So it seems like everything is up except for that one segment. From what I'm seeing from Saturday night, the only thing I'm really seeing from the June tenth show is the Nasty Boys squash match over the Southern Posse. Okay. So June 3rd would be just Sullivan running through the woods, but not getting to the dungeon yet, right? Yeah. Oh, well. Yeah, well, those things just say ain't, ain't there. It's crazy. Father. I mean, he says father during that whole thing, maybe more than he ever did at any other time. Yeah. Well, may, maybe during uh, the angle with the star warrior. <laughs> Because <laughs> the Star Wars uh, injured his father. I, I'm looking here. Uh, we can tap out on this. It's fine. Yeah. Don't make me have to add it. Come on. Yeah, it's not. Yeah, it's not. It's on motion either. So there you go. Crazy. But that's how it goes sometimes. All right. Uh, Saturday night, I've got the full report here from Wade. The program with Cliff, Rick Flair, and Randy Savage from the previous week's show. Touch by Bobby and Gene discuss TV show next week's bash. He did his best version of Jerry Lawler insulting Helen is too hard as he ripped into Angela Poffo saying he wears the pins and keeps his teeth in a glass next to his chair. Renegade won a squash. His ultimate warrior style intro music's back after a brief hiatus. In a post match interview, Renegade imitated Ultimate Warrior's interview style. Although you can't help but cringe as he barely made it through his one run on sentence interview. Diamond Page. Wearing his new ring outfit, which was actually designed by Jean-Paul Levesque for went to WWF. What? How about that? Also, I just realized I have access to a Google Drive that has this. I forgot, so we might actually... Jean-Paul Levesque, fashion designer. Who knew? Um, defeated Frankie at the top of Lancaster. At ringside, Max Muscle held up a 10 sign saying how Soundpage's wrestling is. At the debut of this? Yes. The Diamond Doll was also by his side. In a post-match interview, Paige demanded that Dave Sullivan come out. He then challenged him to arm wrestling contest where he put up a date with Diamond Doll against his pet bunny rabbit. Sullivan had the rabbit in his arms. After the rabbit whispered in his ear, he agreed to his stipulations. So the contest was added to the Great American Bash. Gene Oakland has the Great American Bash Control Center running down the lineup. He put 900 line seeing who would have the real story behind him. Hawks return to WCW, and what WCW officials told William the French Raider Perry when he visited their offices. We covered that on Between the Sheets episode sometime. I can't remember when, but I know he talked about it. Then the skit aired uh, where Sullivan actually caught the King Curtis. He told Sullivan he had to create a Dungeon of Doom to destroy Hulkamania. Sullivan said it would take a lot to destroy Hulkamania because there are so many Hulkamaniacs. Then we get the Flare House right thing, where Savage and Fear calls the right his chance to win the tournament. Oh, we got it. Okay. Yes. Sullivan! You have finally arrived! Sullivan! Millions and millions! Hulkamaniacs from the cesspools of Beirut to Tokyo. Everywhere they race by the millions per day. 
of the immortal Hulk Hogan. I tried to defeat him. Nobody can defeat him. Why do you single me out? I can't defeat him. The red and yellow, they're just growing. Leaps and bounds. There's millions of Alchemaniacs. And you expect me to defeat him? Sullivan! <laughs> it is known and felt. The warriors are gathering on the four continents and the seven oceans. So actually, wait, it's the next week then that he becomes the Taskmaster? I guess so. Where he, he gets a spell put on him or whatever by King Curtis, and he suddenly he has the red and yellow gear and the horns painted on? I guess so. Uh, Savage and Fury calls him Flair the, t- the right to win the tournament, blah, blah, blah. Nasty Boys of Southern Posse, Sunny Trout and Rick Thames, and a post-mission interview Nasty's talking about facing the Blue Bloods on main event and non-title match and a rematch with the titles on the line at the bash. At the moment... So, okay. So now Wade's report goes from the Nasty Boys match back to Flair and Wright. At the moment, offense by Wright includes Saul Drockier. Flair took over some very hard chops to Wright's chest. The producer informs Shavani and Randy Savage just arrived to the building. Wright reversed Flair to the turnbuckle, hit bat body drop, and executed two drop kicks. Flair spot the ringside, backed away from the ring. Savage ran out, held back by Steve Armstrong, Tim Warner, and others. With Flair distracted, Wright rolled up Flair from behind and for a near fall. Wright scored another near fall seconds later. That's Wright charged Flair, Flair lifted him, and dumped him over the top rope neck first. Flair didn't toss Wright from the ring. Flair stomped on Wright and went and let him back into the ring. Flair knee dropped Wright and applied to figure four. Wright eventually reached the ropes. As Flair went for the figure four again, Wright rolled him up for another near fall. Wright began to fight back, hit Flair with a full spin kick. Flair kicked out and caught a charging right elbow to face. Flair went to the top rope, but Wright threw him off. Right one for a drop, body block. Miss. Oh, no, they restarted the match. That's what it was. Okay. They sent okay. them at, to the back and then brought him back out. Okay. Right and then rolled up Flair to count two. Flair rolled through and pulled on Wright's tights. After the win, he stomped on Wright and asked for Savage to come out. Savage charged the ring. Another pull-apart brawl resulted. Horner told Savage to calm down because he get a chance at him later. Voice of reason, Tim Horner. So there you go. So this is after the U.S. title tournament match where... Uh, that's what it was. Yeah, right, they showed the clip. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Oh, that's what the one earlier was. Okay, this is the yeah. earlier was a clip. Okay, was yeah, because the the week or two or whenever it was before, one of the all time stupidest finishes I've ever seen. Savage runs in. First thing he does is throws right out of the ring, and right loses by DQ. Yes, stupid. And then after Savage commiserates with him, like, "Hey, your father was a wrestler too, so you know where I'm coming from." Yes. Saturday Night drew a 1.9 rating. Oh. Sunday the Main Event did a 1.7. Pro did a 1.3. And the close, Gordon's, and this is from the torch, Gordon Sully is telling people a syndicator out of Florida is interested in using him for voiceovers of Japanese wrestling shows. He wants to market to U.S. stations. That was one reason Gordon said he, he left WCW. That's Ring Warriors from Hiro Matsuda and Howard Brody. That is correct. 
Yes. So there you go. Yes, and ends up being briefly, I think, because I think that's Howard's dream combo. Uh, Gordon Soli and Bruno San Martino. That's right. Yeah. Yes, as uh, as they noted in Matt Watch, although it wasn't until late July. Steve Beverly mentioning this is the end of the Soli era on TBS. I mean, he had been gone for a few years anyway, but you know, from uh, eighty-five to eighty-nine, but still. Yeah, he was out there for you four years. Yeah. All right. Next week on Between the Sheets, we'll advance two years. It was good the nineteen ninety-seven. Where we're talking about Ric Flair renewing his contract with WCW. That wouldn't become fortuitous in the next year. Yeah, I'm kind of thinking if it's in 1997, <sighs> I don't think he actually renewed his contract. <laughs> well, we'll have all kind of details on that. Great Wreck and Bash pay-per-view with the Marco de Quad and the Malines. So we'll have news on that show. Yes, a rare uh, Great American Bash pay-per-view that's not at the Baltimore Arena. Featuring... Uh, Kevin Green against Mongo, among other matches. Then we have Nitro right after that in Chicago. So we had news on that. All kind of press on that show regarding Dennis Rodman. WCW ran a tour of Germany, including a live German TV special. We'll talk about that. And uh, we'll have all kinds of other news and views, including uh, Russell WCW getting pissed off how much money these uh, real sports celebrities are making. And, uh, there's some other interesting WCW information I don't want to give away too much this time. Ricky Choshu announces his retirement. Uh-huh. So we'll talk about that. We'll have news on Ken Shamrock appearing for FMW. And all kinds of other Japanese indie scum stuff. Lots of stuff there. Then we got uh, another Tripmania in AAA. So we'll talk about that. This will be Tripmania 5B. Then we have uh, Eric Bischoff, big meeting with Paco Alonso coming up. So we'll have a news on that and all kinds of other stuff in Mexico. From the indie scene, we got uh, ECW, where we have a title change during our week and other news and notes. Of course, ECW television situations updated. Always a between the sheets favor. Jerry Lawler and Tommy Dreamer face off in Memphis to start the USW-ECW feud in that part of the world. So we'll have news on that. Don Fry makes his pro wrestling debut, but not, not where you think. Buddy Rose and Roddy Piper have a little tete-a-tete on a Portland radio station. Jesse Ventura announces he's running for governor of Minnesota. Well, indicates his, it's in the process. And the World Wrestling Federation, we have a major auto accident to talk about involving uh, a few names. Oh, yeah. Plus, what the hell What the hell is going on with Shawn Michaels after the whole Bret Hart uh, fight on June the 9th and uh, all kinds of other stuff on Raw Nance, including a very interesting, fantastic story to talk about in the WS section. So, and and an a, a interesting hiring on the announce team for WWF as well. All that more next week on Between the Sheets. No guest next week again because we got to get the Patreon show done. And it's a pretty long show. So there you go. Mixed. Thanks as always. You're the rock of the show. And this is Chris saying so long from the Peach State of Georgia. <laughs>